with Van Nuvigan's reading, which kind of raises the question of evangelism generally and mission. And then I was going to move in, or, or then Kevin was going to talk about evangelistic worship. Um, and then I was going to talk about church planting and relationship to culture and the, what we call the missional church. So uh, we're reversing that, and it, it'll work. You can put it together. You're smart people, I know that. So with that, and also just uh, we do have a little housekeeping. I'm going to be coming back, by the way, to eat. So I'm just going to go to the funeral, which probably lasts about an hour. And then I'm going to come back and pick up wherever you guys are and uh, eat eat our celebration dinner. We'll have a few words at that time of of encouragement and what's next kind of discussion uh, in terms of where we are. So uh, I should mention, though, in case I forget, that every single one of these are on the website. You just go to this this, uh, link here, the Shepherd Leader Training, and they're there. So I would encourage you to take a Saturday morning, maybe, just do it kind of like you did here. Take a Saturday morning within the next, I'd put, I'd put like a month or two on it, you know, say, okay, I'm going to get this thing done, you know. And I'd go back and, and just get you some coffee and, you know, relax and listen to this, go through them. It'll be, you know, you'll have to kind of be more intuitive about following it on the, with the uh, handouts. Obviously, there won't be someone, well, you'll hear us say, well, this is the hair out there. But anyway, they're all there, you know, the course is there, but it's not video, but it is taped. So I would encourage you to do that. And as you're going to hear in our congregational meeting uh, Sunday, this really is, I think, one, and I really, gonna, I really mean this, okay? This isn't hyperbole. I think we're at a really critical moment in the life of this church. Really, really, really critical. Um, and that is the critical moment of needing more elders and needing more uh, WLB members. And, and maybe to a lesser degree, but we still do, so certainly SLB. But this was focused on WLB and, fe- and session uh, is the focus of this training. And so just, I, I do hope that y'all are praying about that. The congregation is going to be asked to pray about it. We're going to begin our VOCO process this Sunday with nominations. And um, so I hope that you'll uh, you know, just be thinking about that and praying for us as a church. But it's a very crucial time. And um, I'm glad this course, you've been able to do it. But, uh, you know, of course, there's other dynamics to that call. I understand that. And, and you know, related, you know, it also pertains to shepherding, you know, shepherding vision, call, aptitudes. It's a shepherding role that we're talking about. It's it's not just a, an academic role, of course. So um, it's kind of like what we, we say about us pastors. You know, you can go to seminary. That doesn't get you ordained. Uh, there's got to be the whole other side of it, which is you're, you're, at least others think you're a shepherd and you think you're a shepherd. <laughs> but the two, inward and outward, have to come together. So that's the process, of course, that we have. Um, any questions about anything before we get started? I feel like I'm just kind of chucking in. You know, I'm, I'm in that kind of mode. Actually, it's been like that this year, but this month or two has been like just a total tilt, you know. And I just, I am, I'm in a tilt mode, which is good. I kind of get excited about it, but I feel like I'm just ramrodding stuff. So, anything you want to ask or talk about? Can we turn the lights on for those of us that are sleepy this time of day? We can. Can you see the thing up there? That's that's why I turned it down. Oh, probably. Is it? We'll let you know in a minute. Is that harder to see or is it all right? Okay. Um... So, if you want, you can pull up this. This, uh, uh, if you've already pulled it up, I've revised it a little bit. Just got clean, cleaned it up. It depends on when you pulled it up. If you pulled it up yeah. two weeks ago, if you just pulled it up, it's fine. Um, but uh, if 
you pulled it up two weeks ago, like Gary did, I think uh, there was a few. There's a few format differences, and added a, a quote or two. But uh, anyway, so you might want to pull it up if you want to follow it that way. So why don't we just begin though in prayer? Because we are here uh, to think about this idea, and it really boils down to this passage um, that we have. You know, John's great commission is the commission. Just as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Which begs an analysis of, well, then how did Christ get sent? Um, but there's some, some, there's two real important theses that come out of that little verse. It's a nice little verse to hang a lot of theology, actually. Um, because what it first tells you is what? We're going to pray, but I'm going to set it up. Um, just as the Father, and there's two amazing and, and, really astounding truths that are embedded in that short little uh, commission. Just as the Father sent me, so I send you. What are those, what do you hear? Two really profound statements there. Sent. Mm-hmm. And who sent? Father. The Father sent the Son. Of course, if you pull this out, and John, how, you know, and the Son, of course, the Father sends the Holy Spirit in the Son's name. So there's there's a lot of sentness in the very being of God. I mean, I don't know if you've thought about that. It's called Missia Day, Missia Day, and and there's a whole movement called missional theology, and that's the beginning of that movement. It's the idea that the Trinity is missional, that there's a there's a missional. I use this word ontological, that, that, that by the very nature of God. No, if I would ask you, what is the nature of God? Well, you would begin, you know, the kind of, of confession of faith answer that we've learned in confessional theology, and you begin to, well, God is a spirit. He's by nature a spirit. God is by nature infinite and perfections, and you go and begin all the most, you know, the most holies, the most this, the most that, the most this. Um, and, and those are, and that's, and the most is important. It's not that he's holy and loving and blank. It's, he's most, which means there's no superior. There's nothing like him. Um, and so you go through that whole litany of things. Um, but what seems to have escaped a lot of theology is the, the, the missional nature of God. I mean, at the very core of his being, he's revelatory. Re- revelation. Just that idea is a missional idea. God in mission to reveal himself and his glory. Um, And so when you stop and think about that passage, what does it mean that we are praying right now to a God? So if you were to say, you know, God, you know, our prayer is for your glory to reveal yourself. And and have you ever stopped to think that, that mission then is not even a, it's not even a mission, if you mean by that, a cause. Mission is just the being of God. So we partake of that being. Just like if you were to say you partake of holiness, you'd say, well, I'm partaking of the divine nature when I, when I do, when I'm holy. I'm partaking of the divine nature. I, don't, I mean, I'm trying to, you know, you've seen this in our theology class, I know. If, I've just been doing that and some of you have been there. But, but... There's an emphasis here. And so let me, let me try to craft it another way. This is really important because um, it's going to help us pray a bit. Um, the Western Christendom has tended to be very what? We've talked about it a lot, covenantal oriented or forensic oriented. So it's a law that you share your faith. Go ye therefore into all the world, making disciples of all nations, 
You know, that to me is a very covenantal-esque Great Commission, which is good, of course. We, we, we affirm the forensic. We affirm the law here. We're, we're not antinomian. We, and the law is what saved us when it was fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And therefore, it's the very basis of the objectivity of grace that gives us assurance. So don't ever, don't let anybody tell you law is bad. A law is good because it saves us objectively when it's fulfilled by a substitute, which means we have grace. You would not have grace if our salvation were all temple because that's a subjective grace. So, yeah, God is good. And, and we, and so Matthew gives us a kind of covenantal-esque great commission, go ye therefore out into all the world, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them all things whatsoever I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you into the earth. That's great. And we're going to talk more about that too. But, and it assumes Matthew 16, by the way, which is really huge, because that's the, the commissioning of the church. Um, but, but now we're talking about this temple idea and this idea of partaking of God, of participating with God, of union spirituality. And when you stop and think about how it is that God, you know, that the Lord prays in John, John's theology is all focused on temple, you know, and the union. And Father, that they may be one as we are one, make them one. Without, you know, there's this one, 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 union, 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 sort of priestly prayer of Christ. And so when it says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you, the, the first presupposition of that is that it's the very nature of God to be missional. To, so now you have this idea that when we're talking about mission, we're not just talking, we're talking about communion with God. It's what we do to be in communion with Him. That's really powerful to me. That, that just changes something about this. To, to see myself... Uh, not doing a duty, but enjoying His presence when I when I share my faith, or when I plant a church, or when I participate in planting churches, or when we whatever we're doing, we are really sharing in the in the very nature of God. He is sentness. So the, as the Father sent me, that's huge. And then the second part, what do you hear going on there? That's pretty profound, really profound. Passing it on. Okay, certainly passing it on. But what is the nature of that passing it on? Just as the Father sent me, so I send you. Now, what's the presupposition of that second part? Same authority. Good. There's a, there's a, there's a, there is a, when I say same, at least there's, that we are invested with his authority. There's a sense in which we're invested with his authority. Good. What else? Our Holy Spirit. Okay, there's a sense in which we're invested with his power. This is really life-changing if you're stopping to think about this. We're invested with his power. What else is assumed there? The submission of Christ to the Father, like the Son to the Father. Yeah. Good. So the the submission, the the, the manner in which the, the Son is is serving his Father is is passed on to us. So we're to be in some sense continuation of his presence here. Good. Bingo. That's the whole thesis of John. You get the A, a award today already. But, you know, it's, it's, there's a real sense in which John's thesis is that for Jesus to walk in the midst of us is for God to walk in the midst of us. Which, which is profound because it's now suggesting that you in this mystic union with me, in union, mystic union with the Father, in the Trinitarian union of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I just can't even say all this stuff fast enough. 
That there is union to the degree that therefore where you go, I am. Just as the Father sent me, so I send you. Where you go, I am. And I am is the whole point of the priestly prayer. You know, and this idea of it. And so then you ask him, what do you mean by that? Well, the thesis of John is, of course, temple. That, that we, that the word, there's that forensic law, you know, regu- the regulation of God's glory through law and execution of that through law. So we're looking at a covenant executor here. The word became flesh. Just as the Father sent me, so I send you. Flesh. We're the flesh, but what flesh? Just as the Father sent me, the Word became flesh, so Jesus is flesh, and templed among us, or templed in the midst of us. So now I send you to be what? The flesh. The flesh. The presence of Christ. Um, this is this this is a life-changing moment if you've never thought about this. Um, it just totally transforms the way we think of of mission um, to understand it and locate it. And so let's just take a season of prayer and pray for uh, this time as we uh, proceed to the Lord's uh, revelation about this. But but let's pray for us, uh, our church, uh, our our. Let's just, let's just have a prayer for mission for a minute and and craft it into this narrative that we've just started with. Could we do that? So let's go ahead and any of you would like to pray, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of being a part of your people. Mm. 
do long to see your glory. We long to um, see you more clearly and pray that um, our body here would more and more clearly be the flesh of Christ and how we love each other and how we love our neighbors. We pray that your name would be glorified in that and that people would see you more and more clearly. Mm-hmm. Father, I pray that we would be seeking the joy of your presence. Mm-hmm. Even as we see the mission, and we ask, Father, that we would be willing people, that we would be so desiring of your presence in our lives, in our community, and in the city, that we would be used to be the right way. We ask you. Father, it is astonishing that a being self-sufficient, in need of nothing or no one, a being infinite in perfection, with with a beauty of communion and fellowship that existed uh, prior to our even existence. There is nothing you needed. You had perfect intimacy, uh, one with another, in the mystery of the Trinitarian Godhead. We, you had all power and all wealth and everything. And so we stop and pause to thank you that that we get the joy of participating in you. Not, not because you needed us, but because we needed you and are dependent upon you in every way. And uh, we thank you that you are missional, that you would condescend um, in the most beautiful sense of that word to to know us and to let us know you and to just it's just an amazing idea when we stop and think about what's happening here uh, even at the very beginning why, why even create anything that, that beyond what you are uh, it's just and so we thank you and we do pray Father that you make us as a church more and more missional that we might partake of your glory in mission we pray that you give our church more and more uh, effectiveness as we seek to be effective in communicating the way you would do mission, not just that we would do mission and then take it on to ourselves to put our own strategy on it and put our own human creativity to it as is so often to have it but Lord help us to do it your way since this is about you and your revelation uh, so teach us Lord what that means and we pray all this as we enter into this lesson, our final lesson of our shepherd leader training, that uh, as shepherds, uh, we seek, Lord, to be missional shepherds. Shepherds that shepherd a flock, many of which we don't even know who the flock is yet, because they haven't been converted. They haven't, they haven't been churched. And so, Father, you know them by name. You have chosen them before even the foundation of the world. And so, help us, even there, to partake of this great mission of gathering the nations through mission um, into your presence. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So did you get a chance to read the uh, Why Plant Churches? Again, I apologize because it was in a pretty rough form and I did clean it up a little bit this week. But anybody, uh, any, just what's your general thoughts? What, what comes out at you? What do you think is the thesis there? I always hate it when, um, when a professor ask you to evaluate his own paper. You just don't like doing that, I know. But uh, it's meant to be just a little, what we call a ministry paper. It's not a paper paper, of course. But um, 
Any, any, uh, what, what just comes out at you though? Anything that you want to comment on? What's the, what's the overall thing going on here? It's kind of meeting of people where they are. Okay. Is that Newbigin? Is that, is that came out of the wide plant churches? Uh, I can't answer that. Okay. It came out of the material. Okay, somewhere in the material. Okay, here you go. I think you're going to get that, a lot of that in, in Newbigin. That's well, well, you get in a lot of it, actually. You know, we'll, we'll get it in some other stuff we're going to do. But okay. What else? Why plant? Did anybody read it? Okay. Why plant churches? Yeah, go ahead. Emily, I think you were about to. Um, I need to say, sorry. Uh, um, I think it's been um, um, the idea that sorry, um, the idea that like one church can't can't reach all of the people all the mm. time kind mm. of thing. Um, so, so the, the greater things theme that, that you're picking up on a little bit. Yeah. That Jesus couldn't reach all the people at the same time. Therefore, one local church couldn't do it either. There's a kind of multiplication that goes on to make it accessible. Is that uh, yes. What you're saying? Yes. Okay. Yeah. That's right. There is. That's that's getting to that idea of what did Jesus mean when he said greater things, and in John's thesis, you got to remember that that's when usually you know again our, you know the whole ISO Jesus problem that our world has, especially the evangelical culture. More Christian you get, the more I find these ISO Jesus works because you're assuming this common knowledge that everyone can. Oh yeah, sure. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't get. It's fun to be able to. to the more I'm in a non-Christian environment, it's so fun because it makes you go and prove what you have to say. Um, you know, Christian will say they'll hear a pastor say something, and because they've been taught it, it's a truth. They'll say, "Oh, yeah, that's true," regardless of whether it actually comes from that passage or not, or whatever. But when you get into this issue of, of the missional church, the thesis is we got to ask. John, the gospel writer of John, what did Jesus mean? Why is it that you're telling us this about this greater things? What was Jesus affirming needs to happen based on the thesis of John? And that's where you come down, exactly where you just did. You're going to come down to there is a kind of democratization of presence. God's presence becomes more and more accessible to more and more people at the same time, on the same day even. You know, why? Because of this mystery of presence through the church. So that's really cool. Big. Anything else from the paper? Yeah. How about it revitalizes an established mother church? Okay, so you you picked up the the advantages of church planning for the mother church. Okay, good. That's right. There's no better way to evangelize because the church is the essential element of the gospel. Okay. Not just there is no better. So, what do you mean by no better way? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's prayer churches. We've been involved in that. Mm-hmm. Staff, and there's, you know, long term. We've got a long history together, haven't we, Lisa? To hear her say that just brought back a whole five years of toe to toe it together. That's cool. Go ahead. <laughs> that was a like, moment. It's like the labor force in a way. Not as flashy and um, mm. cool, mm. but it is—it is the vehicle that God is mm. using mm-hmm. to. Is it the vehicle because it's a good strategic plan? Well, 
Yeah, it's a practically good plan. It's a practically good plan. So we, we got that in this paper. I, I reviewed that a little bit. But, so what if it's proven to be unpractical? What if it's proven that uh, it's not the most uh, socially, uh, community, you know, whatever you want to call it, uh, it's not the most in hip way to do evangelism. And in other words, is this just some good hip philosophy of ministry here? Because church planning's in, maybe. I don't know if it is or not, but, but let's just say it is. In other words, let's just go ahead and make the case that, church, that, that I start off with, that church planning uh, is, why church plan? Because it is the most effective, the most uh, strategically efficient and um, productive way for, to see people come to saving faith in Christ. Let's say you could quantify it, etc., which is really what I think I said at the beginning. Okay, great. So it's in. Any problem with that? It's the way God wants to do it. Okay, good. So even if it weren't practical, is really the thesis of this paper. Even if it weren't, we're going to do it anyway. Why? Well, it ministers more personally to everybody. It makes you one. Okay, but that sounds... That's right. It doesn't happen. Yeah. It gets too big. People get lost and they don't, they don't grow spiritual. Totally agree and totally think that's a great observation. But it still feels like a philosophy of ministry observation, i.e. a strategy, a strategic plan, i.e. It's, it's a pragmatic thing, which it is. Don't remember, God's plans are pragmatic, so I'm not, that's not, I don't view pragmatism and whatever theology as mutually exclusive. Uh, I, I believe that usually if our theology isn't working, it's because we need to learn our theology better. And the nuances of that. So that's that's a really big thesis in this church, by the way, if you haven't figured that out. You know, the theological vision is always good news. And theological vision is always practical. And so if it's not acting practical, then we need to ask the question either about our theological expectations and how we measure success, or we're going to have to ask the question of, well, have we really understood the theology of this thing in, in a way that would uh, do it the right way. But there's something going on that's not going to be, oh, well, we got to get rid of some theology here because it's going to be more practical if we don't. And I'm telling you, it's amazing how subtle that can be in church ministry. And and, and it probably starts with us pastors because we, we have more ulterior motives probably to succeed than anyone in this church. So I, I do think shepherds themselves... Uh, to the more you're, and, and, and even to the degree that you're invested in your church. Shepherds are at once most, uh, uh, well, at once they should be at least called by the Holy Spirit most prepared to lead the church well. So I'm not diminishing shepherds. But on the other hand, they are most, humanly speaking, tempted perhaps to lead it bad. You see, because it, because what you would do, is you'd be tempted to say, whatever works, I'll do it, because it pays me, I, gives, it pays me or it gives me prestige. And, 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 and I, I would say most pastors, money is really not the deal. Um, I, I don't know too many pastors that really are really that materialistic in the sense that they're living for their... I mean, I'm sure there's some, and we all struggle with it. I don't mean that. I mean, all struggle like normal Christians. But, but by far, by far, uh, the the more sorted gain, if you will, not for sorted gain. Remember the shepherd, you know, not for sorted. Probably the more sorted gain is personal uh, prestige, uh, personal uh, sense of popularity. Um, 
that comes out, you know, which gets down to your identity. So, so yeah, I want you to hear what you're doing here, though. So, yeah, but, but we're still not quite there. The thesis of the paper. So, even if it's not yet. Um, if you, you know, were pursuing some other pragmatic plan, you'd be missing something of the fullness of Christ. Yes. Like, this is yes. where Christ is in the yes. apostolic foundation with Christ becomes the church. You wouldn't have total Christ. Right. There it is. There's a thesis. And if you don't have total Christ, there's one more step. What do you like now? Back to the original thesis, or the original thing that's all, as the Father sent me, so I sent you. What's this all going back to eventually? Presence. Presence, that's what he gave, that's what he's saying, presence. But for what purpose? It goes back to what? What? Temple. Well, that's that's the method again. I know y'all are trying, this is good. No, this is good, we're wrestling, I like this. Don't, don't ever feel, this is good. But it starts with the, what? We're, we're here to glorify God. And God is missional. So what really this should be about, and let's don't forget this, please, in this church, or any of us, but it really is a sufficient purpose in life to glorify the Lord. And so at the end of the day, we're going to do it because it's the way to glorify God. It's the way God is glorified in His Son, Jesus Christ, as His Son, Jesus Christ, is mediated by the power of the Holy Spirit in, with, and through the life of the flesh of the body of Christ. It all comes together in that priestly prayer. John 17, right? And, and this glory, your glory, your glory, your glory is, I am in you and you are in me and we are in them. It's all about His glory. And we just can't put that on our nice little catechism uh, memory and put it on the shelf. You know, we really do mean that, that it's eventually what we think is happening in mission is, the glor- is about glorifying God. And glorifying is a revealing of God in His fullness. So, that's great. Um, that's the paper. We can go on. But I will point out a few more points. Um, so, yeah, let's just look at it, though. Um, so, first of all, you can follow where I'm at here. If you're looking at it, you can just look down. But I think, you know, yeah. This is this on the MA website? Is this the, or? It should be on your Shepherd Leader. Yeah. Link. So that link goes there. Yeah. That link, yeah. yeah. It's there. And if you go to it now, it'll be the most updated. I'm sure it's still got messes in it. But at least it's cleaner up. So yes, uh, it's a practical plan, um, and I do think we should make note of it. I'm not. Again, I don't see pragmatics as, as antithetical. Um, as a pragmatic plan, I think we sometimes don't think long enough about the advantage that it does have to the existing mother church. I'm glad you pointed that out. Um, you know, what are some of those advantages? What are some of the advantages that are mentioned here for the local church? For, for those churches who plant churches, what are those advantages? Well, there's that revitalization. Mm-hmm. And so think about what is revitalization in the life of the church? What would be the temptation for a church? What would be anti-revitalization in a church? Well, to just kind of get into resting mode. Good. Yourself. Maintenance. It's all together and we don't have to change anything or worry. It takes five years before a missional church becomes a maintenance church. Maintaining a building, maintaining status quo, maintaining, and it becomes a kind of more and more social and more and more clubby and more and more about us um, and, and, conti- and having the advantages of the church. I know in my mind, I, I see huge trends and temptations in this church that way. You know, and it comes in very subtle ways, uh, ways that take for granted 
things that, that a missional church brought to this church. I'm not saying we're not a missional church now, but I do think we're, we're, we're at a critical moment. I really do. Um, I don't know if I should be sharing all this or not, but I do think we're at a critical moment um, where, where uh, the urgency to pray somehow gets less urgent when you see the, the sanctuary filled. You know, I mean, I remember when uh, some of you were here, but boy, when you're when you're planning, you know, there's a sense of uh, urgency. We don't exist if, if if I mean, every person that walks that door becomes like a jewel, you know. And you walk, everyone's just making a beeline to that person and and communing and, and, and offering, you know, love to that and, and sacrifice. I mean, I miss. I know it's really hard. I mean, this isn't a slide against the elders or WLB, but oh. It, you know, in the early years, we happened to live closer together. But you know, every week the elders were getting together praying uh, early before work. I would love to get that started again if we could find a way to do it. Um, and man, we were praying for the power of God in our lives, in our congregation's lives, in this city's life. And you know, that's really hard to do. And their urgency just doesn't seem to be there. When you and, I, and I'm speaking to me too. I mean, this isn't being critical of anybody. I don't want you to hear that. It's it's a it's a culture shift. So that's one way that revitalization happens. Is there's a sense in which um, if we continue to bleed and to and to give birth, it's like a birth process we talk about. When you continue to give birth, you, you suffer the loss of people. You know, I don't know, but but you know, I hope no one leaves for another church that we're planning, kind of personally, but. They may, and it's going to hurt. And I'm not saying they should, and I'm not getting into that issue one way or the other. It's an individual thing. But the point is, is that, that yeah, it, but it's going to take resources that we, whether it's human resources. I mean, our session. I mean, if you're a shepherd, the re, I mean, we have seven people waiting over the hill for us to to examine. When are we going to do that? How are we going to do that? You know, it takes, it makes, and what? Why is that revitalization? Because what does those sacrifices do? Whether it's the sacrifice of more time, whether it's the sacrifice of more money, whether it's the sacrifice of more human resources, whether it's sacrificing, you know, what we could have done with this, these resources, but we're now doing it here. All of that stuff is, is, why would that have anything to do with revitalization? Sometimes you can get complacent. Yeah. Because? You get comfortable in where That's right. That's right. Mission is a very uncomplacent thing. And um, that's exactly right. The reason why everything we just talked about there was the revitalization thing for the Mother Church is that, is that it's keeping us dependent. It's keeping us in, in the game, if you will, that we're supposed to be in and feeling the game. Now, don't be wrong. Later I'm going to say just the church being the church, a healthy church being a healthy church is missional. So, so it's not to suggest that that's not true too. But yeah, did you want? To... I was going to say it keeps us being sent. Yes, good. It keeps us being sent, and and and, and affirming the sentness of our church. Right. Yeah, very important. So that's just one. Uh, another one? Did you see? I didn't see it here, um, although maybe but there's only to be personal as well as mm-hmm. um, corporate. Mm-hmm. Passion. When that goes away, and we're just relying on corporate and church functions and programs, yeah. Well, the, they have. I mean, yeah, the, yeah, you're right, and it's got to be that way. The two are always together. It's never personal evangelism versus corporate evangelism. It's got to be both if it's true evangelism. What about this hedge money thing? Yeah, that's, 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 what do you think about that? 
uh, I don't know, just really struck, it just really, really struck me as, um, uh, uh, that's why I thought you were actually getting a second go when you about the subtle things that creep in, too, yeah. and, and, and the five-year thing that was mentioned in this portion, because I can, I can just really see that it becomes, it no longer then becomes about the gospel, it becomes about sort of fitting into the certain whatever, that yeah. everyone looks, talks, likes, yeah. whatever, does so this, this cultural hegemony makes us less, a church becomes, and it's not so bad, it becomes more specific flesh in the social cultural sense of flesh. So that a church, you know, with, with, an, with a history becomes less, and, and it should be this way actually, it, 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 it chooses a flesh at some point. Which means to reach other flesh, you need to reach. You need to start over, because hegemony means that. What, what, I mean, right now, you can't imagine how much culture comes through our bulletin without even thinking about it, or how much culture comes through. Um, you know, the, the style of preaching, the style of leadership, uh, what people are wearing when they walk through the door, the environment in the door, what's up there on the chancel service. There's culture, 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 culture coming everywhere. And and you could say, and, and is it better culture? No. So if you were to compare our bulletin, let's say, with the Hill Bulletin, are we, we have a good bulletin and a bad bulletin? Absolutely not. We have a bulletin that reflects the flesh and the vernacular of a community that God wants. And this is another thing. What does it do to a vernacular that we believe in this whole spiritual? This is a sacramental point we make. But, but God embraces the vernacular to be present there. If he's present, which we believe he is, then that vernacular is high culture. I'm a real, as you know, I get real up in arms about this high culture, low culture stuff. It is incredibly how presumptuous it is if you think of it spiritually. It usually is, it means a Eurocentric. Now granted, we can make arguments for why European culture or Western culture has great things and advantages. I believe it does. But I think I could turn right around and talk about Eastern culture and say, wow, look at how beautiful and great and advantageous it is. Eastern culture, Western culture, you know, Eurocentric culture, Africa-centric culture. I mean, how can we possibly, as Christians, stand up and call any of that high and low culture? Except that we can find a genuine high spirituality, low spirituality attached to it. We All cultures have sins. All cultures have godliness. But we'd have to, and so it's not that all cultures are equal. They're different. And they have different values, maybe, that should be celebrated. So I'm not, this is really much more complex. But if you stop and think about it, do we really believe that, that whether it's going to the Hill community, whether it's going to a Hispanic community, whether it's going into a suburbial or an urban, which is the big thing now, we're high, you know, um, are we are we moving from high and low? Are we moving from more divine culture versus less divine culture? Have we even stopped to think about those categories? Because you hear it all the time. You know, today there's kind of this. You know, even church, trying to get church planners. Every church planner wants to go to a big city. You know, you know, city, urban cities are in. You know, and I'm having to go out there ironically and make a case that you know what? I don't think God sees the world divided up quite like that. I don't think he, he does, has any kind of distaste for, for, for the suburb, suburbial communities. What they're looking for, what they're desiring, are, are, are many, many things of which are very beautiful and good and understandable. 
and vice versa in the city. There's, you know, we got to deal. So there's a real problem with this cultural hegemony thing. I think there are good reasons to head everywhere. I could really say that. Or rural. We didn't mention that one. The sadness is to the whole world. That's right. That's right. And this is where I do take issue with some of Keller's material. I, I, you know, I've said it. Well, I've written it and I've, I've said it. But, but um, I, I do appreciate what he says. I'll just have to... The way he defines city typically is a demographic definition, whereas I think his use of Klein, Klein is using it as a theological category. Uh, it's where there is natural grace or state is what we call the civil state polity. So the city is where there is a government on behalf of God that is common grace in nature. He tends to move that quickly right over to the urban. But 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 look, I appreciate Keller in his context. He he's a pastor of an urban church, or I'd say a center city church. That's a little bit, and therefore he's he's right to, to affirm the calling of being there and and all of that. I think that's great. But I don't think you're a second-class church planner if you go into the city or versus you go here or go there. Or we don't think you're a second-class Christian if you live here or live there or live there. Um, and that's the point. You got, And I think he would agree with that. I'm going to presume he would agree with that. But his but material really doesn't say that, and that's why I've had to take issue with it. But you kind of take the word city out of it and say culture or, yeah. or region or something. Yeah, yeah. So again, a lot of us pastors are informed by where we, where, where, who we're talking to, and we emphasize that. So I, I, I give that benefit of doubt. So I don't mean to be critical. I just mean we got to see what we're saying here about cultural hegemony, and that therefore church planning is, a, is practically speaking, is a good method of, of dealing with that problem. Because you go and start all over again, and you have to actually listen again to the culture. You don't just do it. If you're actually going and saying, okay, well, what is the, the best bulletin here? And the best bulletin is going to be the bulletin that feels most natural and common to the society that we're planning it in. Which I took those languages, by the way, right out of Westminster 1 6, if you didn't hear it. What is common to society? So what's common, and therefore it gives them empowerment. There's an empowerment in the gospel that comes with, with this kind of multicultural method of multi associated with multicongregational. You can't, in other words, there's just so much breadth of culture that any one congregation can go until you begin to imperialize a culture upon others that are there. So it's easy for us to say, oh, we want to have a real big church with all cultures present. But but what is the vernacular, cultural vernacular of that church? It, can, it should be able to get more and more maybe blended. But blended can go so far before some cultures losing their culture. At least this side of heaven. I don't know what's going to happen in heaven. It's going to be interesting. So that's great. So we, those are some of the practical things. And there's some others here that we mentioned. Um, I, I want to mention one more that I think is important. I might make this point in the, in the congregation meeting. But this is, this, is, this is a bigger topic. So I'll just trust. I'll just say it so that you can know it. But I think um, probably the, the run-of-the-mill person doesn't appreciate or understand the significance of plausibility structure. Now, what do I mean by that? Um, the success of this one particular congregation is deeply impacted by the degree to which this spirituality is seen as plausible. By plausible, I don't mean credible. I mean plausible, which means that it feels right. It feels right because others do it. It's, you could call it peer credibility. 
Um, now, if we're a, an isolated island in Connecticut, which we are more or less, you know, and it goes back to 1801 and the planning union between the Congregationalists, the Presbyterians, and I could go on and on about why, historical reasons, all sorts of reasons, but everything we do is going to feel uncomfortable. It's going to seem upstream, countercultural. We have a four move. I mean, I'll give you one example that, that really comes out a lot. I was talking about in Georgia today, but but we have a four movement liturgical service, but we do it as Presbyterians and not Anglicans. Now, the Anglican Church, as you know, they they move toward in order to have a, a, a four movement service, which they do, and we share that in common with them. They move to a kind of homily style ministry of word. We call it a homily. You know, twenty minutes. You know, uh, sort of, sort of thing. Presbyterians, part of our whole tradition, if you go back, was as a critique of the homilization of sermons, and that was their big critique of the Anglican, of the, the, of the Anglican Church in the Westminster. Uh, that was one of their big critiques. They had, they, you see, Presbyterian churches moving the pulpit into the center. You see the, the Lord's Supper coming in front of the pulpit. And there was a whole, there was even architectural designs that changed. To say we want a big, robust ministry of word. And of course, sermon's going to get bigger and more robust. Now, I'm just talking about one thing. This happens to be one that we talk about a lot. Um, now, if, if, you, if you are the only person, the only church in the island here, we're the island church, doing, having a full four-mark, not a revival. So on the one hand, not a revival service, band Bible and, and culture call, which then you can have a nice 50-minute sermon, you can have a good 20 minutes of singing, and or you know, and you can be done in an hour and a half and 15 minutes, and it was you got these two bigger major elements. But if you want to do all that other stuff and have a robust service, you're going to have to have a total different concept, at least an hour and a half, and. That's if you do it incredibly efficiently. And and on it goes. Now, now if there is 15 churches around here doing that, and people keep hearing and seeing the fruit of those churches and the kind of lives that that spirituality builds, because remember, that's the, by their fruit you will know them, not by their immediate gratification. Never was a way to know the gospel. It's by their fruit. Ten years over a period of time. What do you see in the life of these congregations? What are these kind of people like? You know, and as those start to, to pick up around here, we begin to validate each other. Oh, well, you're, you're part of that church. That church, almost denomination or type or brand. Oh, you're part of that CPC group of churches. Boy, I met a guy over there at the CPC. He was a really cool guy. Maybe I'll check your church out. And what happens when they walk into the church? They're going to think, you know, whatever they're doing here, it's working. Because I've, I've been experiencing it in the life of my culture now. And, you know, I, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to go now with an attitude that I'm not, I'm not coming into this church thinking that the church has got to get uh, conformed to what I think it should be. I'm coming into a church that's going to say, there's something going on here that, that I've never experienced before, and maybe this is part of it. I've got to adjust the way I think about church. See, that's what all Reformation movements do. They're, they're swimming upswing. So, think about plausibility. What's, why is it important that we plant churches, especially in a missionary environment like this? Because it's going to start to become a, a, our culture gets transformed, and the accessibility of people to our brand, if you will, or our, our ministry in a way that that it mutually supports each other. 
You see? And so that's really huge. Um, the other thing that you think about it, so another way to put it is the more churches that are out there and missions, and we're talking about doing a counseling center, they, they become mediators for each church. This church is mediating culture to this church and vice versa. The counseling center, you know, so we're, we're creating a more cultural accessibility the more churches, the more ministries we have out in the city, the more integrated we are in our culture. And that's really cool. Somebody moves from New Haven to, I don't know, Clinton. Right? And, and there's a church. There's a CPC or whatever we're going to call this movement. Church in New Haven. Oh, that's one. They've got one of those kind of churches over there. Where are they going to go to church? First church they're going to minute if they come from this church. So when they start moving around within our community, and we have churches around our community, we're going to, they're going to, there's going to be an accessibility that's going to feed each other. This is really cool. So don't underestimate how important that is practically. And everything I said is just practical. And if everything I just said is not true, by dog, we're going to do it anyway. Because it's the way God is glorified. And that's the second part. And I hope you got to read that carefully. Go ahead. Back there. We didn't talk today about the administration of the sacraments. Mm-hmm. That's going to be a very important reason to churches. And why is that? Connected. Well, it's the means of grace whereby, you know, we receive God's grace. Right. And if you don't have churches in a particular area, how are these people right. going to get that? You, you can make that case for all, all, all the marks of the church. Absolutely. You know, word, sacrament, felt, you know, communion of saints. Yeah. You've got to make it accessible. Yeah. That's right. That's the whole point of it. Exactly. Culturally accessible. It's underneath it. Geographically accessible and culturally accessible. That's the whole thing, yeah. I have a question. This might not be the appropriate time. Okay, I'm going to get Kevin oh, first. Sorry. Oh, I didn't know. Sorry, Lisa. You're cool? <laughs> sorry, I was asleep. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. Um, I think the thing about pragmatism and, and the practical other things that it often gets overlooked is this side of heaven, we, we don't know who the true sheep are yeah. either. Yeah. And so our motivation needs to be faithfulness for the glory of God because we can certainly see a full church and by the best of we, what we can discern they are true. But when we deviate from being faithful and get a lot of Big Ten filled um, Groups, uh, it may seem like we're, we're, it's working, even if we're going contrary to things. Mm-hmm. But we have no guarantee that what's actually happening is the growth of God's kingdom. In fact, yeah. it could be setting up a culture yeah. where the gospel gets muted and people become further away. We, we, we always have a line, well, if we just save one, but what if, what if what we're actually doing is putting barriers for others? Yeah. That's right. We, the, the, the fruit isn't readily uh, discernible. And if we're always measuring ourselves by immediate results, you've got to let your theology lead you. Yeah, that's what the that's a big issue of pragmatism. Pragmatism becomes very short-sighted, very short-sighted, very quickly. That really underlined that, that point. That's really cool. Uh, Lisa? In order to keep the mother church healthy, well, okay, yeah. when you're a sending church, mm-hmm. And in order to be a sending church, I would assume, and maybe it's the wrong assumption, to all the communities around us, whether it be on Saybrook, the Fairfield, Whatever. Cheshire, 
people are leaving, and it's not like this mother church, is we refill with people for a little while. We're not that much. I don't know. How do you keep... How do you not destroy the mother? So, so Lisa's bringing a good point up. I'm gonna, I'll, I'll, I think I'll, t- I'll translate what you said this way. Um, I think her point is uh, you don't kill one church to start another church, and you've got to keep that going. You, you, you really got to be careful. And in, in New England, this is a big difference at least. Most of our churches are not, uh, I mean, equ- equipped. You don't have uh, you know the kind of churches that can form daughter churches. We need to be doing mostly scratch churches. Because the existing churches, for them to be healthy and for them to be able to continue there. Remember, the church is, is we don't define this church as a, as a um, or any church. If we're, if we're going to be continuing in a mission, which we believe we are, and if the thesis that we're about to talk about here is true, then we believe this church is missionary by our very nature. If we're being a good and healthy church in a missional sense, this is a missionary presence of Christ. You're not, so So the, the danger would be that we start seeing ourselves as a sending church. And I think that's a big danger here right now. That's part of what I was trying to say earlier, that all of a sudden this becomes the sending church. And that will be the death of this church in five years. So there are no sending churches? Like that would be the death of any church? I, I don't, I, it depends on what you mean by sending. Well, that's, I, I guess I don't know what you mean. What do you mean? Like mother, mother. Yeah, well, well, what I mean is that, 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 well, maybe it's a sending only. I mean, we're always sending, reproducing maybe is a better word, reproducing. But what I mean is that, that our identity has to be firmly as we are a missionary, mission, we are the church that sent too. That, maybe that's a good way to say it. We're sending, but we're being, but we have been sent. And we are, we are, therefore, all churches, not just talking about this church, must maintain that sentness or they cease to be a healthy church and a vibrant church. And it will, and so, yeah, we, one of the things you have to deal with, and I deal with this with other churches in New England when I talk and consult with them is, is that, you know, you, you gotta be careful here because, um, it's like taking, even if you were to interpret this church as an anchor church or a mother church, which you could, obviously say right now, relative to our context, that this is a mother, anchor, whatever you want to call it, church. You know, you, you don't kill the mother, you know, if, if by building, by, by building, a, you, you got to find a way to keep both healthy. And that's attention. And, and, and the key to that, I think, is, at least in this particular, there are a lot of things, is that you really have to, uh, you have to plant churches honestly. Now let me let me kind of explain that. People came up here and you know they they come in. If you come from Christendom, church planting means take a congregation of 30, 40 people and and start another service. I don't even call that church planting. Uh, that's taking the same brand, the same philosophy, everything else, and just reduplicating in another geographical area. Um, and it's just a second service, kind of like what we're doing in Goville almost, but in another place. Um, and yeah, it, it, it does require organization, so it's a little more than a second service, obviously. But what we've got to do, if we're really going to be, if, if we're reaching unreached people, is we need to go where un, their people are still unreached. And it's going to be a much more tent making style ministry. People forget that that's what happened here. And I didn't know that's what we were doing. I came here to be a student. And 
we, you know, and my job was to go to school, and I began to develop networks in this community with people like George Levesque and others, and there was a little group here already, and I connected with them, and all of a sudden, we're creating this little network, and, and, but, but it's because we're engaged, we were invested in the community. When, when, uh, I mean, this has been a major issue in transforming Fairfield. You know, there was a kind of, at first, this is something that, you know, Andrew will be the first to concede about, but, you know, I kind of pushed back, no, you need to go coach some soccer. You need to go and do, how about your plan? Where, where are the people you're giving me? And I well, so that's up to them. We don't tell people where to go here, you know, and, and we went on about all this and, and, and stuff. But the point being is that, that you you know, and, and there was also a desire, you know, this, let's, let's import a helicopter we could go. Let's, let's bring a, a, a core group from North Carolina. And believe it or not, I pushed back on that. I said, whoa, let's be careful here. We can do it a little bit. It helps to have a team. I'm all for that. But this is, what would happen is it would be converting culture to that team versus the team getting converted to that culture. I want to see the predominant number of this core group being indigenous, fair-filled community people. This is a huge mistake, by the way. I've said this to several churches that come in here and rely on R.C. Sproul and the radio to form a, a reformed church, and they never really get off the ground. Some really big, high-powered types of people coming around going, we're going to do this, and I'm going to bring all this great stuff I learned down there. And I said, that's great. you know. And you'll have people driving 50 miles maybe to hear R.C. Sproul-esque teaching. But are you going to reach blind community? Are you really going to be a church plan? And so, so this is this is huge. What Lisa's talking about. I mean, I appreciate you bringing that up. That, that we have to be careful. That the real spirit and the vision of church planning is to go where where Christ is. Our, what we understand total Christ to be has not gone before, and to plant churches that really are grassroots from the ground up churches, and and not sort of this artificial you know thing. And so that that takes a little more work. Takes a little more time. It takes a little more money. You know, so we've had to construct our church planning movement that way a little bit and say, and it's going well. I think it's going really well in Fairfield, for instance. You know, I think it's going well in, in the Hill to some degree. You know, we, we need some things to change and happen, as you know. But, but the key is, let's just go ahead and let God build his church from within the community. Let's don't bring people over here and have an artificial church. You know, if you don't, the rule of thumb, by the way, is if you don't live there, you don't go there. You know, we really want to focus on people who, you know, live there. And so, um, you know, with some minor exception, maybe, a little team. A little, but they would have to see themselves as church, as missionaries. And they would have to keep themselves in the shadows, not take over the service and the vernacular, but really serve the community. And that's a major shift. You, you know, if you were to go to blind church, that's not your culture, not your place, or whatever... And then there's a lot of other... I mean, Lisa's bringing up a big can of worms, but, but yeah, there's a lot of other issues with that. I mean, there's just also the, the authenticity of relationships in the community of saints. And what do you do with that? You just, you, you know, no. You, so, there's a, so there's a tension, and I'm glad you brought it up. Um, I need to move on. That's all right. It's okay? Anybody got a question? Okay. So you've read the rest of it, I pray, because it really is the substance, and we haven't talked about it. <laughs> um, so I just want to read, though, I, if you have read it, and if you haven't, you really should read it, because it gets to the really core of what, what our church and our message, even in our denomination, is all about. I mean, this is, this is the message that's taking off, at least part of it. Um, but what I'd like to do is, is, so I build the case exegetically, and you know we're, we feel that's very important. 
Because if, if the thesis is we would do it anyway, even if it weren't practical, then you've really got to support that. And so this is what this is meant to do, is support the thesis that we're going to plant churches anyway. And at the very end, um, it, you know, it concludes with the great benediction that John gives. You, you need to follow the, or trace the argument of John here. And that's what I hope you do. But there's a great little uh, quote there at the end that I'm just going to kind of leave us with on this one and then have 15 minutes on something else. And it's this quote by Leslie Newbigin. Um, uh, let's see here. Mm, where's that quote? Huh? Where'd it go? Where'd it go? Where'd it go? I hope I didn't accidentally pull it out. Y'all see it? And yeah, it is lower. I need to do some indenting on this one, actually. I see that when I put it over there. So this was not perfect either. Uh, well, let, let's, let's, let me just read this quote, and then I'll go down and find the other one. The church then is missionary by its very nature. That is a really important statement. Um, I don't want anyone in this church, for instance, to ever, ever come to a place where they don't see ourselves as a church plant, or that means to say that we're not we're not a missionary church. You know the difference between a missionary church and a maintenance church, right? <laughs> you know, and and uh, you know, and so there's a sense in which you know um, we it would it, it's got to be the case, and it gets back to Lisa's point too, that we continue to understand that the church being a church by the by the theological nature of the church and its union with the Holy Spirit through in Christ is missionary. It's where the action is. So for you to be in a church and to help the church be a healthy Christ-centered church is being a missionary. Now if you were to go to India, you'd know exactly what I'm talking about. But there's no difference demographic, spiritually demographic than being in New England. We are a missionary church right now. To support this church financially is to support missions. Not because of, in other words, I remember about five or ten years ago we were doing a budget and someone asked the question, I don't, you know, we don't do that now because of this great Anabino venture fund and all the other things we have, so people haven't asked it. But before all that, I remember somebody said, our mission budget seems to be small in this church, you know. And um, should we be giving 10%, you know, you got the tithe into the question, you know, should we be giving 10% of missions? And I remember we had a little conversation. I was kind of tracking a little bit, you know, with it. And, and finally, I, it was one. I don't know if y'all remember this congregation, but I just remember stepping back and doing a. Uh, uh, what's Mr. Smith goes to Washington? Um, Stewart, remember the moment where he kind of stands up to Congress? And, no, it's not. It's Stewart and it's Wonderful Life. And remember that he was in that moment in, in the in the bank, and everybody's running on the bank, and he stands up. You you're looking at this thing all wrong, you know. And he says, "Bob, your church is a, your your house is his house." Remember that little moment? Oh, that was one of my favorite moments. It was a balcony moment, you know. I really resonate with that. You know, there's a leader, man. He's leading his people. Get, get on, step. And I remember that congregation was one of those congregation meetings. I remember thinking, and I remember saying those exact words. I don't know if I was inspired by it, but it's like, guys, step back for a minute. You know, we're just looking at this thing all wrong. We are that little church on the, in, uh, that little island church in the middle of India. To, to support this church is to support missions in a context that is so needy, you, you can't find hardly any demographic in the world more so. And that's really true. This is not exaggeration. And so when you put money in that play, you're, you're, you're supporting missions. And we've got to keep, but that's 
a symbol, the plate. I'm not trying to talk about money here at all. It's also when you put that time into being an elder here. When you put that time to being a WLB here. When you put that time into being a servant leader board member here. When you do this, when you do this, don't you see you're being, you are doing missions. Because this is what we do. The church is missionary. To partake of the church is to partake of Christ's mission. And it's just almost impossible to talk to people coming out of Christendom to get that through. They, they come in and it takes about five years living up here to figure that out. You think? Do you agree with this? Any problems with what I'm saying? Because this is really huge. I found, I found the new view. Yeah, thank you. It's the well, very last. Would you read it? Sure. And then we'll get to your view. It says if it's the last paragraph of the at least what's on right now. Oh, there it is. Just, just as we yeah. insist, yeah. Just as we insist that a church which has ceased to be a mission has lost the essential character of a church, so must we also say that a mission which is not at the same time truly a church is not a true expression of the divine apostolate. An unchurchly mission is as much a monstrosity as an unmissionary church. <laughs> Boy, you turned a phrase on that one. That is so awesome. But that's what we're saying. That's the point. That's the point. Any comments? And then we're going to go to this next thing for 15 minutes. Yeah? I have a question. And I don't know if this can be answered. I don't, I don't want to sound cynical, but I just kind of wonder, like, why isn't this done more? Or why does this seem, like, different from the trajectory of what, how churches happen in the 20th century? Or I, well, I think this paragraph right here, which I, y'all haven't read this, I've, I've put it in your, your, in your, um, I've put it in the, uh, you know, the website now. So if you were to go to that shepherding and this course, this is a little thing that Keller wrote that's just profound, and this gets to the, it, it introduces Newbigin a little bit. You're going to talk more about Newbigin later, as you know, but, I, but I'm not going to evade your question like it sounds like. I'm going to actually try to address it, but um, I, I think. Um, there is still a lot of Christendom. So one answer I would say is why not? Well, I think there's still, while we are moving into a post-Christian world and we're, we're ahead of the game here than, say, compared to most of the Northeast and South. I mean, you, you, go, you go south of the Hudson and, and you're getting every, every mile you're getting more Christian. I mean, you, you, you north of the Hudson, and I'd even say, and the more north you go, you're getting every month. Go look at the demographics that come out. It's amazing. Connecticut's like number four. Uh, New Hampshire's number three, or Vermont's number three. You know, you, you get up, you just go right up the list. Now, ironically, cities are a little bit anomalies. There's a sense in which cities are more, less Christian and more Christian at the same time. Why do you think that is? Institutionally, they're probably more unchristian because the worldviews, the, the theories, the, the, the institutional fabric that is being informed by, by, by modernity is more and more ascetic. So institutionally, if you look at the institution of, say, whatever that is, the arts, the sciences, the, the media, you know, where the media centers are, the academic centers, this is one of those places, you probably could make a case that Yale institutionally is less Christian today than it was 100 years ago, right? Or you could say that about the media, or you could say that about a lot. So in some sense, you go to New York City, you go to Boston, you go to New Haven, you go to any college town like this, and it's, you could say, oh, it's, it's even... It's much further along in, in non-Christendom or post-Christendom. It's true. 
But there's another sense, and this is where you got to get local, where New Haven is much more Christian than Branford. Or than maybe you know Guilford or wherever you live. Why? Because New Haven has people from Christendom in it. More so than you have in, say, I know from my vantage point, Branford. Having raised my children in Branford, it is a much less Christendom environment than it is in New Haven. I, I can't, I, we hardly even know anybody that knows the for real gospel or has had access to it in Branford. Really. It's not an exaggeration. There, there's some beautiful exceptions. But I come here, and whether it's at Yale, there's professors and students who, who came from those environments, and you have almost a ready-made core group for a campus ministry. Just go after those people who come from those churches who were in Yale. New York, I remember I, I was in Athens when that just started, and I can't tell you how many people I knew that were part of that, that the, 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 uh, the core group of, of Redeemer, all from Atlanta. <laughs> a lot of people from Atlanta were part of that. And some of them are real dear friends of mine. And, I mean, I'm talking about the days when they were not worshiping. Little huddle group. And, you know, you go there and you ask, you know, you've been in Redeemer. Ask around. I'd be real curious. What is the demographic and how many of those people come out of a Christian a Christendom environment? It'd probably be much higher than you imagine. And that's not a critique or anything. They're also doing a great job of reaching New Yorkers. Praise God. And Keller was what? And something like this explains why for Keller. The little position paper he put here. So he's, he's been wise to that. Thank God. But that's what I mean. So I think that's part of the answer to your question is... Is I think there's still a lot of Christendom, and with the Christendom comes that maintenance mentality, that idea that that we're and the focus now becomes Christianizing the, the culture. You see, I mean, I could just go on and on. The difference between and this little and this little paragraph actually addresses that. Um, it's a nice little summary, and again, you're going to pick up with it later, so I'm not going to spend time. But but you could say that Europe is about, I don't know, 80 to 100 years in advance of America, or a decline in terms of Christendom. So when Leslie Newbigin starts writing, first he starts in India, and he becomes a missionary theologian, what we call missional ecclesiology. And then he goes back to Europe, and he goes, my gosh, this I've got I to gotta take the same theology that I was utilizing and, and developing while in South India, and do it right here in this neighborhood, in, in, in England. And that's that's what I think is interesting here. So this little paper here, and you can see it, uh, um, the British missionary Leslie Newbigin went to India around 1950. There he was involved in a church living in mission in a very non-Christian culture. When he returned to England some 30 years later, he discovered that now the Western church too existed in a non-Christian society, but it had not yet adapted to its new situation. Through public institutions and popular culture of Europe and North America, no longer Christianized people, the church still ran its ministries, assuming that a stream of Christianized traditional moral people would simply show up in a service. I mean, he's going to get into this, but imagine how that changes everything. How do you do evangelism for Christendom? Well, you're, you're, you're talking about people that are already guilty. You're talking about people who've already heard all the morals of Christianity, and you're probably going to talk a lot about moralism. You're going to talk a lot about grace. You're going to have to focus on the freedom of grace and and against moralism. Moralism is going to be your demon. Now, how are you going to talk to people who are not Christianized? 
Is 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 living with your boyfriend immoral? Is being a transgender immoral? Is on and on and on it goes. It's deep. Christianity creates, you know, you, the conviction of sin, and in a Christendom world, it's always taught, you know. Then, then so the so the breath of fresh air when you're preaching to Christendom is going to be what we call a gospel-centered a message, and that works well when you're sitting there dealing with someone who's a moralist. But what if you're not? <laughs> now, what do we got? See, you're going to have to begin to engage maybe another theme, maybe the theme of oppression, the issue of freedom, the, the gospel as it's described in freedom. You're going to have to engage those things which these people are experiencing as bondage, whether it's stress at work, whether it's this, whether it's that, and you're going to begin to help them see that the, maybe the theme of idolatry becomes more of a, of a theme, not the but the and I say idolatry, I might not use that word, but the idea that there is something that's got a grip of your life that you need to be set free from. And how can the gospel set you free? You see, it's a different message, even. And that's that's the kind of thing. So he's going to talk about that here. And let me just point him out a few. The elements of a Christian church. Um, uh, and, and one is discourse in the vernacular, something we've got to work at better. He talks about tribal language, stylized prayer language, unnecessary evangelical pious jargon, archaic language that sets a spiritual tone. I mean, I went to a, a assembly. Come on, I'm out of time. Um, I, I went to a committee uh, a week ago in Atlanta. I'm on the nominations committee in the nomination. And I walk into the room, and it was truly like a, a splash of water. On my face. I mean, it was that visceral. First of all, the prayer, the, the, the little devotion. It it it, it could have it, it just came right out of a church of five thousand people sitting here with fifty of us, and it's this. But it's not just the five thousand. It's the it's the Christendom. How do I even I don't even know the cathedral? It's 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 the heralding to the world the gospel, and a very the tone of the guy changed everything. I mean, he just got in there and this little guy, oh, you know, and it just went right into this thing. And the music that was playing was was this huge uh, choir and this orchestral uh, with lots of horns. And I don't know, it was triumphant. It's Christendom's triumphalism that was coming through everywhere—a kind of um, celebration of the triumph of Christ. And everything that was happening in that little devotional period. I was just like, like that. Now, I don't, I'm not doing a good job here. I'm frustrated. I'm not saying how. I can't quite get it out. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever been to a general assembly, for instance? On one of our general assemblies? David, did you ever get to go? I mean, you go and, you know, you got the, you got this, this real high, triumphal, powerful, Kind of a situation going on. These and thous. And yeah, you've got to make the language a sacred language and for these people to see you. Because what do you do when you're talking to Christians who want you to be this sort of this this you know this the king you know and you're wanting. So anyway, I walk in there and I'm just going, whoa! I couldn't believe this. I went to one of the most. I didn't do it this time, but a couple years ago, you've heard me say that. I went to a guy named Andy Standy's church. 
And he began to talk about the virtue, talking to Christians. I mean, there I was in Athens, Georgia, the virtual reality church. And, um, and I went with a friend because this person was struggling with it. And, and I said, well, let me go with you. And then I went to the other church afterwards. But, um, and, you know, you had a couple of thousand, two, three thousand people in there. And, but what was astounding was how simple, how easy he, he it, the whole thing was moralistic. He was talking to people who were Christians. He, this is called the Missional Church of Athens. But everyone he's talking to assumes their morality, and he's basically the message is how to be a good, how to make your morality practical. So if you're talking to Christum, it's all going to be about making your sermon practical, 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 practical. You're not, you're not, you're not trying to defend. There's no sacred rhetoric, if you mean by that, defending the case. You're not making a case for Christianity for Christ or any of this. The case is already assumed. The cases. So, as a person who's trained to preach, I'm listening to this, going, "I can't believe this is working." Until I realize, well, well, duh. I mean, his church is one of about thirty churches in New Haven, in, in, in a town half the third the size of New Haven, and it's filled every Sunday. I mean, we're talking right there in the middle of Christendom, where it is totally culture to be Christian, even if you're not a Christian. And what is a person like that? The, the case for Christ, the case for the gospel, the case for all that, done. It's everywhere. So what is what is a good church? It's a practical sermon. What's a, what, you know? And, and so all he did was talk about a practical And what was really astonishing is he made the case of how America, being a Christian nation, is more moral than China. And he gave the illustration of this situation. And I'm thinking of going, now, I don't know if there's not a Chinese person in this room, but if there were, I know they would disagree. And I would disagree. Because the very point he was making, I'm thinking, God, does he even know a Chinese person? Because their culture is inherently humble. Well, uh, we're going to take off with this topic uh, from Keller's article called Evangelistic Worship. And I think it's going to feel pretty seamless from what we just talked about. I gave a handout here. Did everyone get one? Uh, I have some extras. Um, and you really don't need to um, to follow too closely in this because if you well if you've read the if you've read the article, um, you will find a lot of uh, this is just summarizing. But I did want to get on the last page to some some questions for us to wrestle with. And I, I really hope that we can um, we can put in some energy to wrestling with how do we how do we live this out as a church because this is really essential. Um, to following through with this concept of the missional church. Um, and uh, it, it was a short enough article that I, I hope you all have gotten, gotten into it. But he begins, um, he begins talking about the worship wars, um, which I thought was an interesting way to, to enter into it. And it, it um, Underlying that is is sort of a bigger question of what's the purpose for worship. And you have all been trained well enough to know the purpose of worship is what? Glorify God. God. Good, yeah. Now, if we think in human terms and still faithful to that, the question could be put, is it a venue to reach unbelievers or is it a place where God's flock is fed? And often, I, you know, I headline this as a, as a false dichotomy, so I'm not, I'm not expecting to surprise you all 
that this, the answer should be both and, but often those are put diametrically opposed. Um, you know, you could ask the question, is CPC, uh, is worship at CPC seeker sensitive? I also threw in a little caveat in there because I, I, I could hear somebody, nobody in particular, but somebody say, well, wait a second, nobody seeks God, right? <laughs> well, yeah, nobody seeks God. So that's often the, the line against seeker-sensitive churches. Well, nobody seeks God. Romans 3.11 tells us that. Um, yet, we do believe in conversion. We believe non-Christians do become Christians. And somewhere in the process, God's spirit, uh, they are seekers, right? I mean, yes, we, we think that being seekers, uh, it's already a work of God's spirit to put them there. Um, but seeker-sensitive, um, seeker-sensitive has gotten a bad name in a lot of, a lot of uh, circles. Um, what would it look like for CPC to be a seeker-sensitive service? Should it be? Is it? Um, is worship a place where you could envision inviting your non-Christian friends? Or alternatively, do you fear something would be lost if worship was designed with the expectation that unbelievers are present? You get the, the two sides of those. Is that getting clear? Um, I say this specifically about worship because that was the central part of the topic I was given and the central thesis of the article but I think it's about the body of Christ in general this um, if I wanted to really get you guys debating we could talk about the community group and whether that should be seeker sensitive or for uh, the benefit of uh, Christians and you guys would all fight about well no this is where I get to be vulnerable oh no this is where we can actually invite people and reach out and you should start thinking about, do those things have to be mutually exclusive? Are they necessarily um, mutually exclusive? But I won't go into that because, well, unless we have time. You guys want to debate that. But I want to think about worship, specifically worship, because everything we just have been talking about with the missional church, the design theologically of the missional God, setting out worship itself as a means where he communes with his people. Um, and often um, the opposing sides to this um, lead us to what has been called the worship wars. Now, um, that seems like a generation ago. That seems a good 30 years ago that this stuff was debated. But for the sake of getting everybody on the same page, does anybody know what is meant by the worship wars? Um, again, this article was probably written... Uh, I think it was early 90s, maybe. So this is, this is a, a dated article. Um, but that term, anybody uh, want to define it or explain it? Is it familiar to anybody here? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thankfully, I think we're not in it right now here. So, um, what is it? Anybody? A lot of people think about it as Music. Yep, yep, mostly music. Sometimes it will, um, let's start with the music and then we'll get into some other areas, but music and what what usually are the sides to the wars? What, what are the two battlefronts? Uh, contemporary music to reach the, the younger generation yeah, okay. to music and, and yeah. us old guys who like 
Pike organs. Okay. Okay. But who like you know some standards that you've known and grown up. Okay. Yeah. So you're 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 uh, you're putting in in the phrase of of style and taste. Often it's it's. Um, but I think you you do sort of allude to some of this is the dichotomy between um, discipling and connecting, growing the people that are Christians and reaching those who are not Christians. Those that can be the, the that can be part of the battle. Also, where the pulpit is, or if it's even there at all. Okay, all right, so going beyond music. Let me just stay with, I want to get to that, but let me get to stay with music for a little bit more. What else is in that? Um, clearly we've got the, and which is what he focused on mostly when he talks about this. Yeah, Emily? Oh, they're fleshing out the music distinction. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so, but from, from the reading too, like the, that, the, that there's like a, there's an historical component to the older music. culture to say one culture is better than another culture. On another level, it's a it's a it's a bit of relevant relevance. One is, seems more relevant, and one and the other side is maybe more traditional and historical. One says, "Let's connect with saints of the past," and everybody's like, "Yeah, let's do that." That you know, Holy Spirit didn't just start here. Another say, well, "Don't get frozen in the past," and you know, you're what about saints today? Yeah, that's true too. And these battles get on raging. Oftentimes, uh, it is also, I've heard it expressed, like, well, worship isn't for non-Christians. Worship is for Christians. You know, it's, obviously they, you know, they, they give the lip service to it's for the glory of God. But it want to say, well, no, this is for Christians here. Um, we forget to feed the flock. So how, how about other aspects? Okay, so we, we talked a little bit about music. A lot of that's contemporary versus traditional. Um, I just say something yeah, about music. Yeah. Sometimes the, the lyrics aren't scripturally correct in some of the contemporary. So, sometimes the traditional too. Yeah, no, it, it's it's there. You got lots of um, heresies about little baby Jesus, meek and mild. And well, wait a second, we just you know, he makes no sound. Wait, is he is this docetism? You know, is it just seem like a man? Yeah. So there's there's four. The advantage that classical uh, or traditional hymns has is it has years of, of other people vetting it and rejecting some of it. So you're left with just kind of the ones that that didn't get cast off. Um, but yeah, so there's there's downsides. Some would say that um, that uh, uh, the traditional uh, forms of music might be cold and distant, and the modern ones. Authentic and, and connecting, emotion, getting, engaging my emotions. Others would say, 
contemporary is narcissistic and only has I. But when the other ones have doctrine, I would say that contemporary oftentimes might be less doctrinal, but it also might be more scriptural. Sometimes they're more, you know, have more scripture. Um, you know, all those all those sides get in this, and um, uh, I'm trying to flee. maybe I'll just lead to his his statement here because this is classic Keller. If you know if you know Tim Keller and how he argues his points, it is uh, Hegelian synthesis, right? There's there's the one point, and then there's the antithesis to that. And then he's like, well, wait a second, no, the point is the middle point, right in the middle. And I love what he does here, because he's like, hey, expect me to do that, right? And the answer is blended. <laughs> it's like, no, the answer is not blended. That's not the point, right? What, is, what, um, what he's setting out here, um, this third way that you might think um, solves the weaknesses of both, um, that's not an argument against blended, as he says that. You know, I think what we would call our worship here is blended. Rather, Keller argues there's a deeper misunderstanding about worship. What is his? What is his? Uh, what's the deeper misunderstanding in the midst of this worship war? Oh, you're reading it. You're all reading the next paragraph. <laughs> Say it. Come on. What's what's the deeper misunderstanding? It's not the two, it's not the lines between traditional and contemporary. It's not feeding the flock or or evangelizing. And it's not trying to trying to blend contemporary and traditional so everybody's tastes um, get get satiated. You want me to give it? Anybody want to take a stab at it? You're all afraid. Since we couldn't look at our thing, and then we assume that we looked at our thing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can hear you reading. Oh, you thing. Yeah, no. <laughs> look, guys, you were looking down, and I could see your lips moving, so. <laughs> um, that, that, those, that those two sides are mutually exclusive. Um, that is that, that, that it should be, that it, that, could, that could both be feeding the flock and evangelistic seems like it, from that debate that, that can't, they can't coexist or that um, glorifying God and reaching our neighbor are mutually exclusive as, as, as it's an either or um, and the contemporary traditional tends to fall into those lines where blended would just say it's just a matter of taste and regarding to people's tastes um, neglects the, the deeper issue that what is often at work here is saying um, you can't have uh, depth in sermons, you can't have depth in worshiping content, and also it be relevant and reach others. And Keller wants to argue no, both of those things necessarily have to be together. Um, we didn't go into anything beyond. Um, beyond music, but this is often where you have um, pitted against each other sermons that are either um, deep doctrinal, using language like justification and propitiation and, and uh, Christian, 
Christianese in, in their in their sermons versus practical, maybe a drama instead of a sermon, and very um, easy to understand and comprehensible. You hear those two sides. What's Again, the problem is which one is which one is right in worship. They're both wrong, right? I mean, they're both they both got issues. Um, you know, one has issues in its incomprehensibility; uh, the other one in its lack of any any substance, if if you will. Um, they're they're. Keller's thesis is that biblical worship is by its very nature evangelistic. The very event of worshiping God has the effect of transformation. It entails that we must praise God before unbelieving nations. And he goes through a lot of Old Testament passages where God is glorified in the midst of his people while the whole of the world, all the nations, are looking on. And then he goes into the early church and we see the same thing that God's people are worshiping and the nations are looking on and and numbers of believers are increasing. Um, all right. Questions? Interactions with that at all? Um, do you get how he, he plays that dichotomy and offers the third way? Does it make sense now? Yeah. Just a, a comment. Not, not a yeah. I was raised in a Catholic tradition. Mm. Many other people from this church have been, or different, have been from different um, faith traditions. I always thought it was really great coming to CPC for the first time to be to not have that Christianese kind of talk because that's foreign to me. Yeah. It, it's yeah. a Christianese of a certain denomination, right. and so I always thought that um, there was an intent here at CPC. Just on the on the fact of bringing folks from different groups together, yeah, that, that was part of the process. So, and then extending that out to non-believers, makes yeah. We try. We intentionally try to do that to to rid ourselves of that, but that's extremely hard. Um, I don't say I do it perfectly. I'm not impressed when say it does perfectly, but that's our intent. Um, now, that doesn't mean that you never talk about the concept of justification, but it also doesn't even mean you don't use the terms, but you always explain them. You always try to explain them. Um, I don't know if you noticed, but I, every time I talk about sin, I try to explain it. I try very intentionally to do it, almost every time I mention the concept of sin. Because for me, and that, this is more personal, for me, that was my biggest obstacle to the gospel. I never understood what sin was. Growing up, I kind of got Christianity. It generally, Jesus dies for something, but sinners were those people, and it never really understood. Yeah, I did things wrong, but what is sin? Um, because if you just say sin is an abstract Ten Commandments, you, you just don't. I think most of us would. Not many of you have killed people, right? A few of you have committed adultery. You know. Okay, lying, you know, bearing false witness, you can kind of, you know. Oh, okay. Those of you who have murdered are leaving. Yeah, okay. Okay. Um, okay. But, you know, I think those things where it's, it's not getting rid of the language of Christianity, but it is starting to define it. 
He gives two biblical examples here. Can somebody read the first one, um, which begins in the top of the next page? This is a, this is from First Corinthians uh, fourteen. Okay, what's the red herring here that could give us hours to talk about? Yeah, yeah well, let's get on the whole conversation about prophecy and where prophecy is today. Um, and while that's important, and we, we, you know, we should talk about it, what, what is this observation about the church that's going on here that's really profound? What, what is this teaching us about uh, the early church? What are some conclusions you can draw about life in the early church? They weren't so cloistered that they didn't have unbelievers coming in. <laughs> they had to be present if the unbeliever enters. It's not like, oops, oops, sorry, I didn't know what this was. And, um, yeah, they're present. Unbelievers are present in their worship. This is, and this is, by the way, specifically a context of worship, right? They are specifically talking, as Paul's in a long section here about worship that started in chapter 11 and, and goes through chapter 14. What else is happening here? Or something here, so don't don't go in with that premise. No, go in no, with the observation. Sorry, I don't remember if it was this or not. I guess it was from the reading. Uh-huh. I guess what struck out to me from the reading was the, the deal about like that some people some people may be in not believers might be in worship and have a sort of conversion moment. I don't know in, in worship, and sometimes it's more like just sort of like great cancels like pre gospel kind of thing. Like oh, that's what sin really is. Like mm-hmm. could I see myself as a sinner kind yeah. of thing and. And, that, and then the people have the opportunity then afterwards to, that we, that shows in scripture the fact that the, the, those people have the opportunity afterwards to sort of tease that out and flesh that yeah. out with people in church. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, look at this passage. Verse 25, there's something from God's word is coming to them and the secrets of their hearts are disclosed. They fall on their face, worshiping God and declaring that God is really among you. Um... That's pretty profound. I mean, something is happening here. Other than they're just included and and um, and then told to stand at a distance, or you know, told to view, you know avert your eyes as we you know worship, or or that they're just sort of included in general in a friendly way, but God is never present. Yeah, the presence and the power. Like I don't, know, yeah. I just, I'm really captivated yeah. by this because I don't think I had I had quite noticed in scripture this. Yeah, and it connected with God's word and, and his presence there. The larger context of that, again, remember, is prophecy being and tongues being um, confusing and needing to be comprehensible. The, there's always a matter of, okay, this needs an interpretation, this needs clarity. 
And leaving aside some of those other debates, the key in that is God's word needs to get out there to those who are there so that its power might be at work. That's the picture of worship. Let's read Acts 2. Someone. Uh, sorry, you know, this is, this is a summary, so I'll just read it. So just in case I'm mistyped in some way. The crowd gathered in the presence of the disciples can hear them declaring the wonders of God in their own tongues, leaving them amazed and perplexed, and later cut to the heart and said, Brothers, what must you do? That's like a real quick summary of a very long section in chapter 2 as it talks about Pentecost, the pouring out of the Spirit. What's happening at Pentecost? Those of you who know the, the account. Holy Spirit's. Yeah. Holy Spirit's coming in power. Replicating from chapter 1, replicating Jesus' ministry. It said Jesus was in power in his ministry. And then he says, wait, and this, the, uh, the Spirit that empowered me is now going to empower you. Um, and then it comes in chapter 2. And uh, what's the event? What's, what's the occasion that's, that... Um, that's going on when this happens. Uh, what's happening in Jerusalem at the time? Celebration of Pentecost. Celebration of Pentecost. And just a lot of foreigners. A lot of foreigners coming. So a lot of different cultures, a lot of different languages are coming in the, in the presence of this. Um, and what happens with the Spirit's work? What's, what's going on? They can hear. The they can hear. There's in their own tongues a language. The comprehensibility is happening. And power of that results in their conversion. These are the glimpses we're getting. Now, some say that, oh, New Testament doesn't give you a lot of on worship. Well, it gives you a lot of glimpses that we kind of ignore sometimes, frankly. Um, we're hearing, you see the elements of worship. Um, what happens in the, there's another story that is still in Acts 2 that's at the end, is the one where they everybody remembers that they share things in common, and they get this idea of some commune but if you really read that passage, everything that's happening in, um, I can't remember the, the 35 or 42 or 40, I mean it starts at 42. I can't remember. In, at the end of chapter 2, what's happening, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayer and to fellowship with the saints, breaking bread with one another and sharing all things in common. And they're amazed at what's, what happens there. Those are elements of worship. That's not just a gathering where they're hanging out eating food together, having pizza and, and talking about how wonderful experience they have in their private devotions, they are putting themselves under the apostolic teaching. They're worshiping God. And then it says at the conclusion of that very small little paragraph that the Lord had added many to their number. 3,000 or something, I can't remember. But um, the, the idea there um, is that how can God add to their number if there weren't already unbelievers part, there uh, present in worship. You, you cannot add to the numbers if they're not, if the presupposition isn't that there, there are unbelievers in their presence um, during that. So really, I think revolutionary understanding of what worship was like in the, in the New Testament. Um, but there's a bit more formal structure to it than we presuppose, and that in that structure, um, there still is this uh, expectation that the world is watching and that God's spirit is transformative and powerful. Um, observations that Keller draws from these are, are the three we've, we've touched on here. Non-believers are expected to be present. Non-believers must find the praise of Christians to be comprehensible. 
non-believers fall under the conviction and be converted through the comprehensible worship. Um, those are all things that we've uh, seen and talked about here. Comments, questions? Yeah. Well, we still all sin, and what's amazing is that we're all there being under conviction, not only those right. that, are, that don't know Christ. Yeah. So in that, the joy is spread throughout. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, um, yeah. The the false uh, dichotomy again is that it's only for outsiders. Um, but there's something about you actually growing and you glorifying God. If CPC was a place where you did not find the message good news to you. But you said, you know what, people, this is kind of slick and nice and everybody would get it. My, my friends would really like this, but I don't really get it. How you sell it to other people, how you talk about it to other people is just going to be dead. You know, you'd kind of like this. Eh, you know, it's okay for me. It's like if you ever watched a movie, you know, and you, you know what, you would kind of like that movie, I think. I'm less inclined to watch it because I don't know your evaluation of me and you know, what kind of things I would like. But if you were just enthralled with it and you got excited about it and you said, oh, wow. You know, you start talking about hiding and saying, wow, this is amazing, you know. Not, you know, a particular piece of art or, or something that you're drawn to, you're going to praise it and that's contagious. Um, and that, that will draw people in. Um, but you also have to, um, have to see it as plausible for your friends to like it. Um, this is where he gets into the tasks. And this is why he starts in the wrong order. He starts, you know, he goes two, three, one with the three tasks that, that need to impact us as we think about this. And he does this, um, you know, in a, in a way to, to jar us a little bit with this point by saying that... Um, Getting unbelievers to worship is something we think should be one, but it's really two. Um, we will never bring unbelievers to a worship until we're convinced that it's plausible that unbelievers could be converted out of our worship service. He writes, they may find a particular service wonderfully edifying for them, and yet know that non-believer, non-believing neighbors would react negatively. Um, Talk to, interact with that a little bit. Um, with what's he, what's he, um, what's he trying to to say as a critique to many types of worship services? Well, we just talked about the comprehensibility. Yes, so good. I can sit there as someone who grew up in a Christian home. Yeah. And know, uh, you know, maybe this is at a certain level, and, and maybe it was interesting to me. It may not be to somebody else because of the, the content, because we didn't link them together, like the four movements. You know, if you take you know one of those pillars and just go deep, deep, deep into it, or start deep and go even further. I mean, lots of ways to confuse an audience that's at a different place yeah. in their walk. So, and, and it could be that I don't get a lot of that stuff either. Right. But, I don't know. But, so no point of contact with them. No context. <laughs> no, you're not sharing the context. So you. you 
I think in this scenario, it's you maybe seeing it and engaging it, but realizing that where my friends are at, where my neighbors are at, they just it will be a foreign language to them. <coughs> supper, which we do every week, we explain it for a reason. Yes. Are those coming from right. traditions, they're uh, right. coming the first time, and we explain every week, and we and we actually link it right from the sermon. It's a very yeah. clear. Yeah. You know the the four things that were that were uh, f- taught in the early church about Christians in the in Roman culture. Has anybody have ever heard that from church history? You know the four things that were taught about Christian worship. So what Christians do when they worship together? Cannibals. They, they were taught that they were cannibals. They taught they were taught that they were atheists because hey look there's no God when they when they get gathered together. He's not there. They were taught that they were incestuous. Y'all know why, right? Because you're my brothers and sisters in Christ. And hope oh, Christy's my sister in Christ. Well, we're married. Whoa, watch out, guys. <laughs> um, yeah, anybody get the fourth one? Anyway. They said that, that idea that, that if you're an outsider coming in, you're hearing it, and it's just gonna be, what we do is going to be completely fine. Part of that's not bad. Look, I don't want to completely sell it. Uh, as a, as as we have to we have to make uncommon holy things common, right? Because I've seen people do it where they get up basically and they say, you know what, nothing really special is happening here. You know, God's not really here, and you know, this is just bread, right? This is just ordinary stuff, and this message that I'm giving you, you know, it's just just take it as common advice. Right, and I think your non-Christians are more familiar. Non-Christian friends are more familiar with common advice. But you start arrogating to yourself all this. I'm actually speaking God's word, and this is God's presence. Um, so, you know, they're going to say, "Well, wait a second. I'm never in a situation where somebody does that." Uh, so I don't. But that's needed. They need to. They need to have the contact with the holy, with the other, with with something different. Or else, why bother, right? I mean, why come to a place that's just an, another meeting, another person giving advice to you on how to live, another, admittedly, very small meal, um, you know, an, another group of, of people that I, I don't, you know, that might be judging me or whatever. No, so there needs to be some otherness. There needs to be some strangeness in the worship. But there needs to be some some part of that translating and making accessible and it can't be our language that makes the confusion. Is that is that clear? Does that make sense? I yeah. Like the, was, was the expression the nothing that compelled nothing to repel save Christ. Save Christ, right. So the negative um, there's just so many there's so many particulars that people could be reacting negatively to. But if somebody reacts, <coughs> some people will react negatively because they are they are being, being convicted, or they're being convicted, or they're they're simply not they are denying gospel. You know, like maybe yeah. the negative, yeah. and, and like I mean that's Paul in First Corinthians says, or Second Corinthians says, um, to those who are perishing, it's the stench of death. Christ is the stench of death. For those who are being saved, it's the aroma of life. I mean, that's that's what's going to happen if it's Christ. But underlying that point as well is there could be other things 
that stink <laughs> that aren't Christ. And then all of a sudden, we they never even get to Christ because all they can they all they can hear is our culture being put at you or you know somebody's wisdom. I mean, guys, this um, the quickest thing to shorten a sermon in this church would be to skip exegesis. If I could just say, trust me on this, guys. Passage says it, you know, blah, 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 Paul said this, or um, whatever, you know, Preston, chuck out the middle section of your sermon where you, where you make the case that this is scripture. Take out my, you know, take out all the points where I'm trying to say, look at verse 5, look at verse 10. Take all those stuff away, and you got a nice short message. You got all the points of practical stuff. You get all the you get all the um, the relevance to it. And it may even still be true. May even still be true. <laughs> Hopefully, you know. But but <laughs> but what you're at? But what you in reality? What you're actually saying is, I've got a message for you. Um. And you're going to have to either trust, or I'm going to separate you from God's word. You're going to have to trust that this is God's not. All, all can say that it can be done quicker and more efficiently. All that, yes, yes, yes. But um, but if we don't draw it into God's word, and we don't say that what is being given to you is God's word, then we're just left in a very human sort of way. Yes. Is that sort of homily versus sermon? Yeah, or- yeah. I mean, oftentimes homily is is. Is used to refer to a short sermon. I would say what it is is expositional preaching, versus either topical, thematic, or something like that. Um, there are a lot of churches. Um, I would say vast, vast, vast majority of churches in New Haven around the country are topical, where you get three points about a topic, um, or or four points or whatever. It just you get you get the relevant pieces. And then, um, and they can actually be very long, but very engaging and very practical. I mean, there are some that are hour long um, and very engaging and very practical, um, but they don't dig into the, the text. Expositional. Now, if you struggle over God's word, if you're in God's word, if you seek Him out, you're going to enjoy that parts of it. But, um, but if you don't, if you're completely foreign, it's going to be difficult. Well, by digging into the word, you're saying. Trust Christ. You're not putting yourself in the way saying, trust me. Right. Um, and I think that's essential. Sola scriptura. Yeah. So what you're hearing, what you're hearing me do a little bit in framing this is, is pushing a little back on Keller because, he, but Keller's pushing way back on, on other trends that we, I think we buy into a lot here too. But that, um, we can never forget that even as we appeal to God's word, we're doing it in a way that can connect and should be connecting to other people. Um, it should it should be a way that um, God's glory is being manifest to, to outsiders. And this this is where the plausibility comes. You act, can you actually envision somebody that you know coming into this uh, place coming into this service, being explained to you know all the things explained and, and being engaged at their level. Uh, the vicious cycle that he, he talks about is pastors see only Christians present, so they lack the incentive to make their worships comprehensible to outsiders. But since they fail to make adaptations, Christians who are there, though perhaps edified themselves, do not think to bring their skeptical and non-Christian friends to church. They think they will be impressed, so um, they don't think they will be impressed. So, uh, outs- so no outsiders come. 
The best way to get Christians uh, to bring non-Christians is to worship as if there are dozens and hundreds of skeptical onlookers. And if you worship as if, eventually, they will be there in reality. That is a really, really important phrase, uh, sentence. Um, It's really important for us to think about. What are some implications of this? Um, not just as pastors, but as a whole as a whole church. Um, what are some implications of worshiping, of living the body of Christ as if the world were watching? Very genuine. Yep. Yeah. Call to leave the the facade at home. How that gets, how sin gets talked about today. Anybody know the the typical way that a very, and we even say evangelical, um, the very sort of sensitive person talks about about sin. The word brokenness. That's true. There's a truth to that. I don't want to deny it. Part of it is healing. Gospel is healing. Brokenness is a result of this of sin. But very subtly. If all you're hearing is brokenness and our brokenness, um, you leave yourself out of any of that. There's no, how do you repent of being broken? There's no there's no room for repentance. Uh, repentance itself is difficult. No. Again, we need to be saying brokenness. I think that's an important concept. Um, but that's also a very subtle way to avoid uh, our own role in it and our own need to our own their own part of the good news of the gospel that. Um, that repentance is something that frees us and leads us to um, to new life, not just heals us. Well, that's another ramification. If you don't worship this way, is you can lose the gospel. Yeah. Because that that whole like we talk about the gospel being the ABCs and the XYZs, right. Christians actually need to hear it again and again and again because we're still sinners, because yep. we still need to struggle. So. You know, worshiping this way as if, you know, the skeptics are there and people who have not heard ever are there will help keep us not only, you know, missional as a church, personally, it will keep us reminded and and reconvicted. And if you present the gospel as this is Jesus Christ, this is Jesus Christ's um, uh, Propitiation for your sins. This is uh, imputation of Christ's righteousness on your behalf. Um, you're saying all the things that are needed to say in the gospel, but you have just lost the people that you're talking to. Um, there, there needs to be a way to understand. You know, everything you just said about that church in, in Atlanta that um, was making the comparison between one culture and another culture. You know, you're just your your assumption is who is there and 
so yeah, th those are those are some really important uh, consequences to this. What are some others? Anything else? That, yeah. Today, I think one of the biggest trials is the television industry because so much of it is way off base. People have no understanding. Right. I mean, the real. I mean, yeah. they're not around other right. people. Right. There's, yeah. there's not a venue for. Right. Yeah. Challenging it or anything, and I think that there's a competition. People come in, they see it on TV, and they think, "Well, maybe I ought to go to church." Yeah. And then it's kind of weird to them when the real truth is spoken. Yeah. So, so um, that's that's true, and that's good. I, I, that tracks. Let me let me back up again to the the the, the question I want framed here is that. What about you and the ways that, um, the things that could happen here that would make it implausible? And so it might edify you, but it would be implausible to bring somebody else in. So that's, Keller, that's what Keller's getting at, to say um, part of the problem of getting unbelievers to worship is um, you, I can't just say everybody come because, or everybody bring a friend because you, they're thinking, well, yeah, I'm going to come, but yeah, I don't know. We think about this with events, as we think about outreach events. Um, our, you know, faithful Christians are going to come to that, um, but it's very telling when they're not going to bring somebody because because the event's not set up as the expectation for that. And then the vicious cycle happens when you don't bring somebody because of your experience with it or the history of it. So that's that's the the piece I want to uh, help us to think about. What are we? What can we do as a church? Part of what this makes us think about is the person who is not in the room. Think about how that affects music, right? What if I was to say, um, oh, everybody loves the worship here. Everybody loves the, the music. The, the hypothetical church, right? Taking, taking. Uh, but if that was the only assessor of it, if that's the only assessor of it, the question that doesn't get answered, and it may, may be the same answer, maybe yes, everything's awesome, but the thing that doesn't get asked is, what about the people who aren't here? Uh, and maybe they're not here because of the music. Same thing with liturgical elements. Um, you got to, you know, this all this reading and responding. If you go to a culture or a town, a part of town, some areas of town where, you know, they, they just don't ever operate in a situation where they're doing a lot of reading uh, publicly. There's nothing wrong with what you're doing, but. You never, th and maybe everybody there loves the way that it's happening, but you never think about the people that aren't there. You never think about the, the, the reason why they're not there. Uh, it's the empty pew that's the, 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 that's the hardest to ever take any statistics about, right? To ever account for. Um, how, do you, how do you overcome that? Does that make sense? Okay. How do you overcome it? I don't know how you overcome it, but I think you have to think, is it our doing or God's doing? 
to start? What is the point? What are we about? Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Definitely, we have to think. Okay, am I doing something that is is an, an element of worship? And if it's Christ that's offending, great. Yes. But I'm getting. I'm trying to get the scenario of. Um, what if it's not something? What if, what if it's and, and again, what if it's stuff that everybody here kind of likes, but maybe there's it's you're just never accounting for the person who's not there. Do I really know what that yeah. person who's not there, they're out there, right. what would appeal or what would be the point of contact? Right. I, I yeah. find that out. <laughs> yeah, getting, getting in relationships. Relationships with people you know. Steve, are you stretching? Or, yeah. Yeah, I was, but I did. I mean, you at least have to ask the question, right? You have to put That's some right. thought and planning into yes. it. Like, you just never even... Right. Taking that into account when, yes. you're, when you're making these sorts of decisions about exactly. how to do worship or how to do the event, you got to be. That's exactly it. That is exactly that is really important. Just just the very raising of the question. Now the answer might be, we're in tune with it, and that's great. There are people who just aren't coming, but we're in tune with why they're not coming. Um, but if we never ask the question of, okay, and, and especially think about. Um, Think about the city in which your church exists and the people that are around us. If we were, if we're in downtown New Haven and we had a very sort of watered down, very anti-intellectual service, um, it's likely that, well, I don't know, <laughs> it could go a lot of ways, but it's likely we're not going to engage some of the people around us, right? And we're just going to, there's going to be a lot of missing views. Now you can't be everything to everybody. There is a range in which you can. There's an elasticity you can stretch to, and then you have to realize what happens when you reach the end of your elasticity. What? You plant a church. Yeah, exactly. You plant a church. You plant a church. In a sense, I can continue to plant your own church. Um, yeah, that too. Yeah. Assess whether you're still the church that's planted. That has the has the community, the culture moved. Failed, not not to sacrifice or compromise or God or you know your worship or anything, but you failed to keep up with it. Yeah. And so therefore that pew is empty. Yeah. 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 Emily. I was just admit that I think there've been times while well, I've been at this church that, that I thought, oh my goodness, like why does it why does it feel like we have to be changing stuff every year? Mm-hmm. You know, like like and so um. So hear me out because this is not meant to be. This is, this is not that complaint right now. So I, but I, I noticed that I, I feel that way less over the past couple of years, and I think that's, um, you know, I have so much respect for the people that craft the, the calendar and the programs that we do do at Cedar Mountain. Also, also because I think I, um, my lens for why it's worth changing things every year, like why those changes are made, has been has been, become more developed. Yeah. So it doesn't feel like it's an imposition on me or to those that are, you know, here. Like, I just, you know, like if we're doing this the last weekend in February, let's just on our calendar so we know we can do it the last weekend in February and do it again next year. And thought, and I guess I feel more now like that's, it's, it feels less problematic to me because I see that those changes are worth it for the sake of 
the reasons that they're done. And I think that's more of a... Uh, Very, yeah. No, I think that's a great observation. Very quickly, we, we miss the fact that there's people not here for a reason. Yeah, thank you. That, that was great. Uh, so his his the uh, the first then going back to the first what we what it, what should be our first priority is worship in the vernacular. Make it um, explain the surface as you go. Directly address non-believers. Quality of aesthetics, celebrate deeds of mercy and justice, present the sacraments so as to make the gospel clear, preach grace. And then finally, um, have these avenues where we can um, see unbelievers uh, respond. Um, those, with them, all that builds on the expectation that they're there and that God's at work in them, uh, in them while they're there. Um, I have a few sort of closing questions. Uh, things for us to wrestle with. Uh, Keller provides, and some of it we've already we've already touched on. But Keller provides helpful suggestions about comprehensibility and intentionality. But how is this different from a seeker-sensitive critiques? What does a non-Christian need to see, hear, experience, and worship that would lead them to conversion, and not simply to be entertained? I'm going to try to say something different. I think could and should align with secret sensitive. What's changing before that? We're being evangelistic, as Keller says, by definition, and I should align with secret sensitive. Yeah. Yeah. What so I guess in this I'm still asking the question. Um, critiques of secret sensitive um, what needs? What need? What does a Christian need to see, hear, and experience in worship that are, that's going to lead them to? What's that? You mean non-Christian? Yeah, non-Christian. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I think you can't sacrifice the, you know, the elements of worship. You can't sacrifice yeah. on the presentation of the gospel. Yeah. I mean, you have to make sure that that's the intent. Yeah. Some of it would be in the people too. Is how is as a body? How do we look? How do we greet people? Are we seeking them out? Do we know they're not here? Do they see it in action? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And what Jennifer said about seeing that the people who are worshiping here are the gospel is being renewed in them. That they there's yep. a, there's a continual thing. Yeah. That is the what the Christian life is. Or, you know, but they need to see sinners who need the gospel. Yeah, right. Exactly. That's what they need to think, because that's who they are. That's you, you know, I, I think the more that that gets on the surface, and it's less a pastor saying, okay, this will do wonders for you, you know, the whole good old-fashioned testimony, where uh, humans, non-believers and believers, get to see God at work, and a, a non-believer seeing a believer, or their friend, or someone else who's not working at this, you know, saying, this is transformative in my life, is huge. It tells them that this is a place where maybe they don't see it now, but they they know that this is where lives get changed. That's um. so important. They need to see that we're all still sinners. Yeah. Right. And we know it. What'd you say? It needs to be sinner sensitive worship. Sinner sensitive worship, yeah. Because yeah. We're all, we're all right. saved. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
Yeah, that, that's not. Yeah. We started to try to do that, you know, a little bit, but I don't know. We don't think about it being in worship where, you know, maybe during the prayer time we just had someone share, but not the kind of share of how God is, you know, sometimes they always see how God has changed my life instead of something y'all are talking about right now, which is, you know, so it sounds a little bit more triumphant, how it helped me be a better son. What, what I'm hearing you say is testimonies of where God has set them free from guilt or how they've experienced God's forgiveness, you know, as sinners. In other words, what do you think of that? Keller mentioned, like, baptism in particular, and I, I remember this happening in the church I was part of in college as well, that a lot of people, when they were being baptized, would have an opportunity to just talk about, you know, why, why they're at this point, you know, what brought them here. Um, and I, I don't know. If, you like that? You yeah, I mean, you know, obviously, if you do want it to be genuine, like, it's people are effectively reading from a script and it becomes rote, you know, that's, I don't, I don't think that's what Keller's suggesting, and um, I wouldn't expect that to be too compelling. But um, but it seems like a reasonable thing. It, a part of the profession of faith, in some sense. Yeah. Um, it's not so it could come there, it could also come during their absolution, confession and absolution. What if in the middle of the, that, you know, that sequence where we do have confession absolution, you have someone just share a testimony of how they've experienced absolution in their life, you know, how they've experienced forgiveness. Uh, in other words, I hate to, you know, in other words, it's getting back to the thing not only of those who are becoming Christians, but trying to get you, me, we're, we're still being forgiven and experiencing that, right? Places in the service for that to happen. I don't know, it's interesting. We tend to lean away from sort of these spontaneous sort of things because fear of what could happen, but but on the other hand, I, I really think there's something to think about that we ought to be doing more of it. As you have experienced um, the transformative power of God in your life, do you envision yourself, those prospective leaders, do you envision yourself articulating that in front of the congregation? Did you see a scenario where that happens? I don't want to see this. Th- so, so I'm trying to say, that's a great idea, great theoretical, but you people here, can you see yourselves doing it? Because that's often the problem we're running into is people, oh, yeah, this is transformative in my life, but I, I don't really want to share it. I don't know if that public forum is most effective to me. I mean, for me, hearing somebody's story personally to get, like, in a different situation, yeah. one-on-one, is, for me, more effective. That kind of public scenario, I don't know how I'm feeling about that. I agree with Joanne that, and uh, I mean, especially in the context of this, like, for if someone is an unbeliever in worship, and uh, for all of us, I mean, I, I guess, I think it would be scary, but I think I would be willing to stand up and explain, and I was thinking in the, in the worship service, uh, like, the before the pastoral prayer, when we do prayer requests, to yeah. be able to see, um, especially if we're in that sort of communal moment. Yeah. To be able to share that, and then I, I think that would help shape for the community what it, what it is we're praying for. Yeah. yeah. I think that's going to take a a little a little prep and a little spelling because we already try to do that. I hear that at that moment. I hear what are you struggling? What are your anxieties? You know, what are, where what, where is your faith, and how can we pray for you? And seventy percent of what we get back is my aunt's sick. You know, and I'm not not to diminish that. You know, we can be praying for 
others and, and for those kinds of things. But it's already trying to be encouraged, it sounds like. And it is difficult you know, for the congregation to You know where things up. start to change, though, is when you see one person bold yeah. enough, a yeah. leader yeah. bold enough to start saying that. So that's what I'm saying. Then you get a, it's contagious. It starts it's happening. And people feel the environment where you're free and you're not going to be judged. And I think it's good. I think we need that. Well, and to, to Kevin's point and your point, it's got to start this way. Yep. I mean, if we're, if we're uncomfortable sharing how Christ has you know, worked in our life to experience the gospel, and again, it could be a testimony of, you know, I was just extraordinarily anxious about something. You know, I was struggling with my job or I was struggling with whatever. But it, it, in other words, I, I, I think we're so accustomed to hearing some kind of spectacular testimony that we're all afraid to say anything. And it should be very, I think it would be much more impactful if, if we had, if we were able more and more to share, either in a context of, of prayer, as you described, where, pray for me, I'm really suffering anxiety and I need the gospel of my life by that, you know, in relation to blank issue. Well, it's a simple prayer, but you're, people sitting out and going, that's exactly what I'm doing. I, no, I'm not, maybe I'm not doing it. Or, you know, a testimony more close to the absolution. You can you can lead sharing in any part of the service. It's not hard. Or something like that. But I do think somehow if, if the leaders are projecting a culture that's, that is uncomfortable being vulnerable and, and uncomfortable sharing their struggles in a way that brings them to the gospel, it, it, it sort of sets up the, the kind of notion that the only people who are experiencing the gospel are born again, brand new Christians. And I think that's a really dangerous message based on what this whole, the whole evangelistic service is about. Because what, what we need is the, exemplar, the exemplary examples of, I don't know, exemplar, whatever you call it, we need examples of those who are experiencing the gospel, period. And, and it could be a Christian that's been there for you know, 50 years, but it's still alive. That, to me, gives the gospel greater authenticity than some experience that someone's had. And, and you know, you, you kind of want to ask, sometimes when I hear these sort of evangelism, you know, testimonies, I want to say, well, I can't wait to talk to you in 20 years and see what you're saying. <laughs> and is it still on fire? Is it still real? Do you experience the gospel? That's what people need to hear. Yeah. Movies are all about the meeting and romance and falling in love and not many about yeah, about, the marriage. about the marriage and the what you survived and getting through it. Absolutely. Yeah. One place where this is really happening is in the community groups. Mm-hmm. Small groups. Um, I really see it in mine. And I hope that that same freedom is there when a visitor comes. In, in, some, in some level, right? I mean, because the, the whole point here is that we're crafting a service so that we, with the expectation that the non-believer is there. And if the only time we ever talk about where Christ is impacting us is when we're cloistered away from non-believers, because that's where we feel safe. I mean, again, you're, I think very subtly what gets projected is you're, you can't really be safe in this community, or you have to you have to be able to keep up your appearances because being vulnerable here will mean you'll be attacked, or being vulnerable here means you're at risk. I can be safe with people I trust, but I can't be safe here because I don't trust you. 
Well said, Kevin. And I think that's exactly what feeds the narrative that churches aren't safe. Because they don't see us acting like we're safe in front of them. And the, look, there's, there's risk. There might be somebody who, who gives you a snide comment because you said something. There might be somebody who looks down at you. But the gospel needs to be what's, what's undergirding all of this that, you're, that continues to remind you you're freed from that. You're freed from their judgment, and you're in a community that, um, though not perfect, is based on the fact that we are sinners and we need grace and we need the gospel. So that, that has to exude, and, and you know, just kind of playing back on that, it comes from leaders who feel that way and, and can then come in and say, um, we love you and accept you and we're, we're going to be with you here. We're sharing in, in the misery as, you, as, as you're vulnerable, and I'm vulnerable too. I can't believe you so quickly engaged me here. Good job. Because you just walked in here, I'm rolling, rolling up. But to, to this point too, guy, this is a really important thing that we're talking about. If we want to be a missional church, it's got to come out like this. And, and the thing that is, is got to go beyond, what I hear us do a lot here is all of us admit that we're sinners. I don't, I don't think that should be confused with what we're talking about right now. Yep. What we're talking about right now is not, yeah, I'm a sinner. Yeah, I'm a sinner. Yeah, I'm this. I'm this. No, we're talking about real, genuine, concrete, how I've struggled with something and how the gospel is giving me grace. You know, and, and, and that's the stuff that's very powerful. It's not the persons that just acknowledge almost like a creed that, yeah, I'm a really bad sinner. Then do a thing for it. But I mean, I'm glad we're saying that too. But but when the when the person when we're and think about how this is going to encourage each other to share. So I'm, I hope this is really taken to heart. The the whole thesis of Keller's paper is that. that that worship, by its very nature, is evangelistic, and let's do it publicly, you know. And so, um, and if confession of sin is something that we see is what we do in worship, what could be wrong with confessing sins? I mean, that's what we're supposed to be doing. Can't we get beyond the written script and have people be able to share genuinely with their particular sins? What would be wrong with that? I think it's, that's something we really need to think about. I like the idea of tourism bird time. It makes sense to not just, like you said, share your sin, but the hope of the gospel in your sin. Yeah, need. I mean, for a lot of us, that's still very difficult to talk about ourselves as needy people. Um, but yeah, I think that's a great, that's a great point. But it can, you know, it can come out in, in lots of areas. So that is that is a good one, though. But hey, let's start somewhere, right? Let's start somewhere. Um, but I do think that it's not going to start from visitors. It's not going to start from new people. It's going to start with people who are invested and, and people other people see as leaders. And so what argument against it would be that if I share my struggle, I might be... Uh, if I'm a leader and I'm sharing a struggle publicly, that I will be encouraging other people to share that struggle. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's why you always you always share somebody else's story. And so, God, it makes me feel better. I can do it. Is, what do y'all say to that? So you mean that it makes the, the sin and struggle more acceptable? Yeah, it's kind of a it's a it, it, the, the argument that might be presented. I want to hear what y'all think. Is you know for Kevin to share 
that he's struggling uh, in a marriage issue or something, um, and preach back for the gospel, etc., the, 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 the comment that would come back could be, well, but if Kevin, one of our pastors or elders or whatever, is sharing that, then it kind of get, gets me off the hook. It's like, well, if he could do it, I can do it. Or, you know, it's not so bad for me to do it. Now, what do y'all say to that part you know, just from what you're saying, and I'm just reacting, just hearing it for the first time, I would think to myself, well, that's not my sin. You know what I'm saying? It's like, I would have the opposite reaction. Not like I would feel better about it. It's like, well, then maybe I should think about maybe something I'm else. Maybe I'm self-righteous. Yeah, or, or maybe I should think about something else. But I would get pulled away. That's not my sin. So that's just me. I don't know. A lot of people sitting in church. Yeah, I would say I've literally done that. I mean, I've, I've been that person to assert somebody and say, oh, at least I'm not the only one. It's not that bad. So I think maybe one way to avoid it is to express your own grief over it. Like not just to confess it, but to say why, why you want to confess it. Why this is so terrible. I don't tell people why. It would make more sense to me than to say, okay, it's not about that thing. It's about the process of sin yeah. or the experience. Well, but it's got to be concrete. You don't, you don't like the concreteness of it. No, no, I, it, the concreteness doesn't, it, it, if you leave it at that concrete thing yeah. and don't do what Greg's saying, yeah. I would get so, you know, it. I totally agree with Greg. Yeah. I, mean, I, I mean, that's. I guess I assume that. That, that yeah. there would be a kind of, I'm really grieving this, this caused problems in my life. So we don't want to project it. I think his point is a good point. I would agree with it. You don't want to project it. Well, I was a horrible sinner. I did this. Uh, no, you want to show that it's something you're struggling with, and ideally, that that is something. I would think that you could share it in a way where you would hear the saying, "No, that's not my sin." But man, do I relate to what he's, this person's experiencing in terms of suffering from something. That second and part makes no sense. But you have to. But that would have to come with it. But. But without the concrete, it becomes a creed. Yeah. And, and it's not a test. I mean, it's, creeds are good. I'm big on creeds, right? But, but it just becomes a kind of abstract, you know, I'm a sinner and saved by grace. Okay, but yeah. oh, that guy's over there saying, you know, I know for me, who did not grow up as a Christian, um, I walked into a church whenever I did, and I really had a serious, serious, I mean, almost neurotic sense of, of unworthiness compared to these people. I mean, I thought all these people were really great. And I, everybody had to be great here. And I was just, from the other side of the track, screwed. And so, I think it would have been, it was very powerful for me to be around a community, you know, when I started to get around that, that to hear other Christian, Christians, even mature Christians, not just conceding their sins, but to actually talk about how they struggle and how the gospel is, is giving them assurance and, and desire to get beyond that. I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I still remember being in a church um, where the I think the message was, ha, 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 well, I'm such a sinner. Oh, aren't we just sinners? And it's just like, well, if you knew my sin, I'm, I'm not going to laugh at it. <laughs> and I'm, I, don't want, I actually don't want you to know my sin um, because because of its its ugliness. And yet, I need you to know my sin. Now, at least my response to your question is, uh, there has to be at least some sensitivity to um, 
to context and the and the, the state. I, I'm a little I'm a little nervous to encourage somebody to share a sin. It involves somebody else. Well, yeah. Or well, yeah. I think that's a, that's a pretty easy one. I think there's a lot of ways we can share sin when we're actually airing dirty laundry. Um, that that in itself, how we share a sin. You know, if I if I preach a sermon and then you share a prayer request, how you struggle listening to people's sermons. I mean, that <laughs> might be that might be an arrow in your in your prayer request, that, um, intended or not. But uh, what I'm hearing here, though, I think I raise it because I know there are some objections. One objection for you to share things you're sharing is you're afraid that that's going to compromise your your ability to lead. That you think that oh, they're going to think less of you, and therefore you. So that's one. The other I'm hearing is, oh no, I can't share that because that might encourage others to to sin in the ways that I'm saying. And I just wanted to throw that out because yeah, I think both of those are legitimate, but can be addressed in the way that you share your 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 your, your, your struggle. You can't share a struggle that would overcome both of those. Where what I see in David is a very godly man who's struggling with whatever. Um, but who is in a godly manner appropriating the grace of the gospel and is taking steps to, to overcome this, this temptation. I look at that and say, that's the guy I want to follow. Uh-huh. Versus, you know, something to be... Yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, I, I would say that um, there is a sense in which how you share it sometimes, it can allow it to stay in the vague. I, I understand your point about the concrete, but there can be a, a level of brokenness that you can communicate in your sharing that can project that grieving over a sin that you want prayer for. Um, I don't know how you feel about that, but I, I understand exactly what you mean about needing the concrete and getting to the specific, and I think that's important, but there's some things that I think could could, could be said at times when you're just like... I, I, I'm struggling here, and I need your prayers. I don't feel it's right to share right now what it is. But please pray for me in this area. And it might you might throw in something like anxiety or control or or anger or something like that 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 gets us. But yeah, 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 just just something that that doesn't um, that allows you to to express the the grief and hatred of your sin. I think as we're encouraged. Just one more point. Y'all keep wanting to take it back to the prayers. At least in my mind, that's not what I was looking for uh, in this thought. Uh, I, I think it's, it's different. I mean, it's, and I like that too. So I, I think we should do that. And as we said, we have a place to do that already. We just need more of us maybe take advantage of it and model to the congregation how to do it. But, but well, no, I'm actually talking about resolution. In other words, if, if we're doing a confession, I mean, the scripture says confess your sins one to another. I mean, that's vital there. Okay, it's a little messy. We're always afraid of mess, it seems like. I mean, sometimes we just need to get messy. And and I think we should be confessing our sins one to another a bit more. I know that we do that in a closed context as well. But, but I, what I'm thinking, just so y'all don't confuse because we got off on this other thing, I totally agree with what we said about confessing our sins, or, or sharing for prayers as we struggle with sin. That, but that's not what my original idea was. The original idea is, is more along the lines of the testimony. And, and, trying to, and, and the testimony that comes out by not just a new believer, but by a believer who is continuing to be saved, who is continuing to be forgiven. Someone who can say, maybe in the context, since we don't have a baptism every week, I was looking for another context where that would look right, and it seems like possibly the absolution period where someone's going to say, you know, we're going to, 
you know, we're going to confess our sins and hear God's grace apply to that. And as we prepare our hearts to do that, I'd like to share testimony. You know, or Billy Bob would like to share this testimony of something that's you know, been going on in his, his or her life. And they come up for two minutes and they say, or they even stand up and they yeah, you know, I, I had been really struggling for, for months on this issue of anxiety about, um, I don't know, David, I mean, y'all, y'all shared some things. I'll just say, since you, I mean, you shared it back at home. And what a great struggle that was. I mean, we heard that prayer over and over again. I mean, but for David to share, stand up and say, you know, I... I and, you know, pray for me. I'm struggling with some idolatry issues here. I'm struggling with some trust issues here. And, or, or maybe I was, and I am struggling with those. And I'm in testimony to tell you that I have experienced God's grace, and I am, and I am, and I am moving forward with every day trying to turn that back over to Him. Just keep praying for me to do that. You see the difference, though. The testimony is something that demonstrates a little bit of a resolution. I, I do think. I do think people, if we want to be a missional evangelist conservative, I do think people need to hear us praying for resolution. But where do we ever hear people pray that God has resolved something in their life, or is in process of resolving something in their life, as a testimony to the power of the gospel? Mm -hmm. And that's what I heard. I mean, I heard Steve give that example of a baptism, which I resonate with and appreciate this point. It seems like Keller made the point. I just, I don't... I, my point was just to say, we, why do we have to limit it to brand new Christians? And where can we do it in our service where other people can give testimony yeah. to sins forgiven? I think a lot of times we light the bow on it at the end to say it's all clean and wrapped up. And, and con- conversion and, and baptism stories allows us to have full resolution. Whereas I think some of the prayer requests you're talking or some, some of the confession testimonies that you're talking about is really going to be in process. I I believe, or I'm saved, or I'm forgiven, or I'm set free from the fear of condemnation, but please continue to pray for me as I still struggle with that. In other words, it's kind of a believe, I don't, in my unbelief, kind of testimony. But I think it would be very powerful. And and what it would do is set, I think it could be like a flame, you know, that starts to just move around our whole community because we can hear people you know, I've been thinking about this for years. And, you know, I look at the churches, some of the churches I've been working with with BOH, and um, some of the black churches and others, and there's just more place for that in their culture. And I look at, some, like, the Church of, you know, the church of Morocco here. Um, you're going to have a lot of testimonies in those services. And it, it kind of creates a sense of, man, I believe in the Holy Spirit working here, you know? And there's something that starts to happen with that stuff. Hmm. And we're very, you know, let's just be honest, guys. I'm trying to be a little provocative here, obviously. You know that. I, I can do that. But we're, we're kind of Anglo, keep it to the chest, you know, don't, don't let it out, you know. Sometimes maybe we need to kind of get some messy and scary. So my, my concern would be a little more, um, I don't spirit, but, uh, but you're, I think what you're saying is this is more planned. So-and-so is going to do the testimony, not anybody wanting to do the testimony. I, I haven't gotten yeah. to that stage yet. I was more yeah. In terms of execution, yeah. I haven't gotten to that yet. Yeah, I what do you think of that? Well, I, 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 I am concerned. I, I, people need to be prepped. prepped. They, need to be, they need to be aware that they, 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 the Bible says confess your sins. Not confess your neighbor's sins. Yep. And it's a very fine line 
that, that's the that's where I kind of at. And if people were to, I, I don't know. There's there's great arguments either side for the for the just calling people to give a testimony, and and, and it just happens. Mm -hmm. and, you know, the spirit can move in my place. And, uh, but the I don't know, it will spread. <laughs> but wait, this is kind of intentionally provocative. I do think that looking at the bulletin, because I just pulled it up to see where could it be, and because I agree with you, you know, the prayer time is already happening, we can work on you know shaping that. But I do think the absolution is really the only other natural flow point in the service where it could you know, happen. And, just another quick thought is, you do have a pastor standing up in front of the room at that point who could, you know, not that I'm advocating for open testimonials, because I, I agree, there's a little bit of who's doing it, some advanced prep. Is, trust is God. But, God's in it, but there's also a pastor there who can do the on-the-site shaping. They can interpret that like you already well, do. The discussion we all just had was the same discussion we had when we did. We, we, you know, and I've been the. I mean, I mean, you're pre you're preaching what I've been preaching. You know, a more regulated service. I'm trying, I'm just trying to be provocative to myself as well as you. But but when we talked about the prayers, open prayers. Oh, it was a huge discussion along these lines. Really, are we going to open this up? And how far is it going to get opened? And. What don't we bring ourselves to be susceptible susceptible to these certain issues? But that's what good leaders do. They do exactly that, and they try to ask the question: What what are the pitfalls? But they try to not overreact to the pitfalls in ways that they can also give God some space here. It's not under our control all the time, and a way that God can do some things. And again, I'm just piggybacking on what Keller said. I think. It is, it, as much as I'm an anti-revivalist spirituality, as you well know, uh, in that sense, I think we have, you can't be anti-revivalist. There's got to be some aspect of enabling the body of Christ to minister to each other. And uh, that's what happens when that starts to happen, instead of it being all so pastor-centric. Because everyone discounts everything we say as a professional. Now, I hope they don't, but you know what I'm saying. I'm being facetious. When they hear you say it, you know, okay, this wasn't started by, this is real. We just came back from a funeral, and um, there was some, uh, there was the, uh, Sharon, it was a beautiful funeral, by the way, and really, at least I'm very impressed with how many believers were involved with Phyllis's life, which was answers to our prayers mm -hmm. for Phyllis's salvation all these years, and quite an amazing number, And but they were real stories, and I walked away going, you know, Maybe that's probably why I'm feeling right now. But but there were some real cool, amazing stories of, of God working in that her and their life, and and I'm thinking, now why would it? Why would I have to wait for a funeral to hear this? These are these are life shaping testimonies that I'm hearing, and why, why don't we have a place for that? You know, and so that you just just don't think about it. Um, hello. Well, I don't think about. I was wondering. What if we shared this around the time of in the fourth movement of the service? When it was like how like Christ's reigning in your life, like um, shaped in that way, kind of and then paired like with the benediction of the that benediction that we received is that 
or the or the third movement, we, where we are are responding to the gospel as we we process to the throne. We give our confession of faith, not only connecting with the tradition, but we give our profession of faith as what we believe. Actually, I love the way we're talking right now, at least so. because it sounds like we're actually trying to be a missionary church. I can tell you, you can pin one there. You can find a reason for it. Announcements. Seriously, when you're in the point of confession, here's what God did for me. Yeah. People need to know God is still in the business of transforming hearts. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And it wouldn't have to become another rote element that's every Sunday either. Right. It can have just as much effect, like you say, when you don't always have it. You know, and, it, and that we all we already play with the you know the liturgy as far as time goes when there's. This was a, this was huge in the Reformation as as they were trying to figure out. Okay, this isn't a performance. This isn't the worship doesn't consist of the priest doing everything and the, the congregation as you know passive recipients of a grace that gets distributed to them. But it is the people of God worshiping together and the of the participation of what we think is biblical worship and certainly reformational worship. Um, One last point, I know I'm really going on. This is such an example of a couple of things. It's interesting how many churches, we just heard about another one, I uh, won't share publicly yet, who are moving away from hiring pastors. Um, and, it, it, and, and they're just letting it become lay led churches. These are great, you know, great traditions. Some of you might be surprised about. I'm not trying to the brethren or something. And I think part of that is this issue. That they see the world in either or terms. Either we have this pastor who's a very professional-led church, or we don't have pastors and we and, the, and people can be involved. And see, if we don't have these kind of conversations with people, you get these reactionary things where it's all or nothing. It's all people or it's all clergy. And I think we have to think, and that brings my second point, what just happened here, because again, I, I, that was kind of my point, is I want you to see the way the, the discourse just went. You know, if you're going to be, if you're going to be a leader in this church or any church, you have to, to uh, there's a two-step process in, in your thinking. First, you have to imagine what is unimaginable. You have to first give your, you have to suspend judgment on all the problems that could come with it. I mean, this is where I see the death of all vision. Vision has to start with a dream. A dream that is idyllic, yes, that is unrealistic, probably, but a dream. What would it what what would it look like to have a, a genuinely, you know, a, a, an event, a service that was genuinely and powerfully effective in bringing the gospel into the lives of the people? So you have a dream, right? And you start imagining possibilities, having a testimony here, doing something there. And you can't, I'm telling you, you can't have vision. If you start with the criticisms, you got to start with the possibilities, and you have to envision in your head what it could be and what it could do. Because we are much better at problem solving. I think it's amazing once you say, "God, I want that." How then you will set your mind to all the, dealing with all the problems? Because there are, and every good leader needs to have two two minds. One is going to be this dreaming vision. What's the dream here? What's the vision? Why couldn't we plant 10 churches in 10 years? Why couldn't we do this? 
And then you go back. And don't, don't think, though, that means that you're some kind of a... I mean, it's not to be a dreamy, unrealistic person to do that. That's how the world gets changed. But it's by people who then set their minds, okay, I want to see that happen. Now, what can we do to make it happen? And you just can't imagine the ingenuity that you will create with your team and creating, okay, yep, you're right. We've got we to fix a problem where someone gets up there and slanders somebody. How would we fix that problem? Uh, we got to fix the problem of this having the effect that you talked about. How would we fix that problem? You know, and on and on and it goes. I, this is totally unrelated to our training, but I just felt like I needed to say it. We need leaders like that, guys. We need people who can dream big dreams and then fix the problems of the dreams to make the dreams reality. And it's a two-stage thing. Sorry. That was question one of six. <laughs> question two. Uh, no, I think I think it's great. I think we're we fleshed out a lot of this stuff. Uh, I, there are some other, I, I think, questions I had. And I want us to wrestle with some of the things because I don't. There are some uh, points that he made that I, I do want to sort of drag into the. Okay, let's how. What does this really mean? Sort of thing. But maybe since we haven't done the new begin stuff. Um, maybe we should make a transition here. All right. Did you guys get to read New Begin? Um, sort of, a little bit. I, I hope you did. Uh, I posted two chapters from his book called The Gospel and Pluralist Society. Very well worth reading. Um, I actually think this section, this section can serve as a really good capstone of this course because this is going to... Um, encapsulate what it means to be a church um, and what is God's purpose in it. What is its mission? What are we doing? So some of this may feel like review. Didn't have we've been talking about this for a year, um, but I think it will also help in tying things together, framing, um, and, and keeping the, the heart at at um, at the heart of our mission. Um, so you guys had 10 and 18 for reading. I threw in um, some extra notes free of charge from chapter 11 as well. Um, you're welcome, Dave. Um, so we'll run through that, run through this. Um, the first chapter 10 is called, it's called The Logic of Mission. And I've seen him asking this key question of how is the mission of the church rooted in the gospel itself? Now this, of course, is a question we've been talking about in lots of different ways throughout this year. Um, but I just think he, he frames things really well, and, uh, and it would also just be helpful review. So um, first, looking back at the early church especially, he asked the, the early church even back to Acts in, in New Testament times, how did it start? How did the mission start? Rather than a burden, mission begins with a kind of explosion of joy. The news that the rejected and crucified Jesus is alive something that cannot possibly be suppressed. It must be told. Who could be silent about such a fact? The mission is more like the fallout from a vast explosion, a radioactive fallout, which is not lethal, but life-giving. So, um, I just think, I mean, I think he's right. I think you can't read the New Testament without assuming that. And, and it would be sad if, if our leaders um, lost that, that perspective, that this is really what it's all about. Um, he, he makes the claim that Paul nowhere commands anyone to be on a mission. I think what he means by that is, it's not, I don't think he's quite right, when he's, but what he means by that is, 
it's almost like you don't have to say go and evangelize because it's inherent to the gospel itself. How could you not want to? Um, the other aspect of what he means by that is this, this next point. What is going on is the question that you see outsiders bring to the church in Acts. So in Acts, proclamations of, of the gospel are actually in response to questions asked by those outside the church. In every case, there's something present, a new reality, which calls for explanation or prompts the question to which the preaching of the gospel is the answer. So you may think of Acts 2 where um, they're speaking in tongues and there's this great manifestation of the Spirit, or you think in, in lots of places in the Acts where there's this amazing community that is formed. And what he's saying is they're not out preaching the gospel to strangers necessarily. They're forming a new community, and the strangers are coming and saying, what is going on here? What type of community is this? And then they say, well, let me tell you. It's because Jesus is alive. Um, so that's, that's going to help frame later on, too, as far as what is God's mission. It's the church. It's forming the community of the church. Um, Jumping down to uh, what is the mission, let me just read the, the second point there, the Trinitarian presence and foretaste. This also, I think, is where New Begins really good. Uh, the church is meant to be the presence of the reign of God in foretaste, the sign of the inbreaking of the kingdom. The church is not so much the agent of the mission as the locus of the mission. And we may have mentioned this in the past, that is probably the thesis of being a missional church, is that the church is not the source, it's not the agent of mission, it's a place of it. Right? The church is the missionary. Um, so, if that's the mission, uh, another good question to ask is, what is the criterion of a missionary? Well, how, how do we know that this is being accomplished? And he... I think, I think he sort of changes the way we see the early church. And, and when you ask what is the criterion of a missionary, he's saying it's not just accomplishing church growth and the gaining of, of individuals into your church. If you ask what is the success of a mission, it's not church growth. It's not uh, humanization and alleviation of social ills. So he's thinking of sort of what became of World Council churches, m- much of, of liberal mainline churches. That was their... Uh, measure of success. He says instead it's it's simply the creation of believing communities. And so Paul can actually somehow say that his job is done when he has left behind communities of men and women who believe the gospel and live by it in each region. So you can you can trace the book of Acts as as Paul going around trying to set up elders in each place. Because if there are elders in each place, that means the church of Jesus Christ, the foretaste of the reign of God is there, and now he can go on and do that somewhere else. That's how he sort of saw his apostolic mission of doing that. One, one quick example is Titus 1, where he simply says, uh, this is why I left you in Crete, that you might put what remained into order and appoint, every, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And he's just, the assumption there is that if we're appointing elders in, in, a, in every town in that way, we are planting believing communities. God is planting believing communities. Um, 
All right, so th- that's that's a quick rundown of Chapter 10. Do you, do you guys want to engage with any of that? I know some of that's review, but... Is there a heater right here? We're going to do part of Chapter 11. You can go to the next page. Um, you didn't read this, but I think it's a good. Um, it, it fleshes out more of the logic of mission, and it also, I think, engages an important question of the relationship between word and deed. Um, so, is our church going to be more focused on word or more focused on deed? Uh, and you may be able to guess when there's an either or presented to you. What do you say? Yes. Both. Um, so this theological framework, you see that there? This is this is really helpful for me in understanding the relationship between word and deed, word and signs. Our time in history as the church now is between Christ's ascension and his coming again. The time when his reign at the right hand of God is a hidden reality. That time in which signs are granted of that hidden reign, but in which the full revelation of its power and glory is held back in order that all the nations, all the human communities, may have the opportunity to repent and believe in freedom. What do you guys... Does that, somebody, somebody summarize that in a different way. Because or, or, I think that's a very helpful framework. The signs that we're going to talk about are, are the deeds, the, the things that are happening in the community, the healings. These things are meant to point to the reality that Jesus is alive and he reigns. So that's why earlier he could say the church is a foretaste of God's kingdom. It's the place where Jesus, Jesus is alive and he's reigning. This is what it should be like. Um... It's still hidden now because there's still time for people to repent. So there are these signs that break in through the hidden reality until Jesus returns. Does that make sense, that framework? I'm not even summarizing anymore. It's pretty dense. Yeah, it's pretty dense. Yeah, you're right. So now I'm not yet. The now, not yet. Absolutely. Absolutely. The already, not yet. And so, so the twofold mission, let me just um, go over a few of these points. Um, instead of pitting, proclaiming, and, and propelling against each other, what do you mean by propelling? You'll see. Um, we're going to see how they both play a part in this mission. So proclaiming is witnessing to the one person whose work defines and transcends all history, proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming that Jesus is alive and he reigns. Propelling are the deeds, and he calls it propelling because the gospel presses events toward their true end and produces a revolution of expectations, performing the end of history even as it is hidden. What he means by that, performing the end of history, meaning performing, you're living as if Jesus reigns already, even though you don't see it by sight. So we're, we're living now, we see it by faith, and so we're living in a way, we're, we're living beyond Judgment Day, because Judgment Day began 
on Christ on the cross, we're, we're like living beyond judgment day, even though the full thing hasn't come yet. <coughs> so the the events are signs. So it's, pro- it's like it's propelling history past what it really is fully. Does that make sense? So instead of a false dichotomy of an either or between preaching and deeds, preaching is an explanation of the healings. So deeds do not explain themselves and can be misinterpreted or understood in terms of this world. Healings, even the most wonderful, do not call the present world radically into question. The gospel does, and this has to be made explicit. So you may have heard, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. It's really just a misguided quote. Um, Because the gospel has to be made explicit. The deeds are meant to be signs to the truth of the gospel, but the deeds don't themselves explain it. It still has to be made explicit. On the other hand, preaching without deeds is meaningless. If nothing is happening, no explanation is called for, and the words are empty words. It's impossible to give faithful witness to the gospel while being indifferent to the situation of the hungry, sick, the victims of human inhumanity. What did Jesus do? He didn't write a book. What he did was to prepare a community chosen to be the bearer of the secret of the kingdom. Through his total consecration to the Father and his passion, there should be created a community which would continue that which he came from the Father to be and do. All right, so um, any implications you guys can see out of this fact, or what what does this make you think of? towards proclaiming or leans towards deeds? I mean individually, personally. Yeah. That's because you get other people to do it for you. <laughs> 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 That's really I'm all for deeds, man. I'm going to start going to this church and uh, I was back in, in Michigan visiting my parents and so I, I brought them with me to the procedures there and um, the, there was a, a talk about like an MNA um, thing or like church, church planting, the idea of church planting came up. My parents were so engaged, they were like they, they went and spoke to the pastor afterwards, they're like, okay so you're making your churches but like, but really mission, like what are you, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing to, like, feed the poor and, uh, like, all these, like, but like, we want to, like, we, li- we like this idea, but, like, we want to know that something, like, real church is really happening. Mm-hmm. And that was so interesting for me to hear it for that, just the, the framework of, to them, uh, like, churches were good churches, but when the, the deeds, the propelling right. was really evidence, evident, yeah. Right, right. 
And to end this point, I would be more on that camp too because there's so much idle talk in the world, <laughs> and you know we see it in many sectors of society. Yeah. But we, I think, we don't see it here. I think people here, you know, to press this point, are really trying. Maybe it's not perfect. We don't know how to do this perfectly, but people try to actually do something to support what yeah. it is we're proclaiming. Yeah. Yeah. Even the idea of propelling helps us, I think, get away from only focusing on deeds. Because you're it's sort of a weird concept, I realize, but propelling assumes that uh, you're pressing towards the fact that Jesus reigns. You're saying something that is already true, but you don't see it, and you're waiting for it to become sight. Right? So it has to sort of take its attention off the deeds themselves as the end. You know, part of the thesis that you're describing is that we've said to the church, before you're here, but you know it, um, you know, the church, it, it, the church pop being the church is missionary. And so how do you define the church? If you define it as a talking head in society, then you say, but, but the church is a new community. It's a new society. It, it's, a, it's, a, a, you know, it's a society not of this world, but it is a kingdom. Think about kingdom. There's a polity. Mm-hmm. There's a constitution. There is. There are. You know. And so, what's interesting in the scripture is, and we see it in Acts two, of course, is that what we are talking about when we talk. Another way to talk about deeds is just, just one another. I mean, you know, that's that's a phrase that's over and over and over and over and over again. One another. One another. One another. One another. You think about the one anothering, and that's just doing. Mercy. That's doing care giving. That's doing helping. It's doing and right. doing for one another. And so I think, ironically, though, the danger in this word deed thing is the church then starts to focus all of its deeds outside the church. Hmm. And really, what's so powerful? Jesus said, "What is going to compel people? It's not even your deeds outside the church. It's your love one for another. Yeah. It's the fact that." The church, as a new society, as a new community, becomes the witness to the reality and the power of the gospel in that community, you know, as being part of the community of God. It's it's, it's kind of ironic and counterintuitive, but think about it this way. If If you wanted to encourage and witness the power of the family, what would you do? Would you say... All right, so everyone, let's go out and, and help other families. Let's go out and help people, you know, all that. Or, and I don't know if that's the way you need to worry here, but or what we'd say, you'd say, you know, we just start, if you want people to believe in the family, then let's start being good families. Yeah. Let's start being good dads. Let's start being good moms. Let's really be good husbands and wives. And by good, I don't mean moral. I mean just authentic. And, and when people see a really gelling family, and they see how powerful it is and how blessed the people are in that family, the children who are secure and who are growing strong and loving, you know, parents who love one another, forgive each other, when they see that, mm-hmm. now don't you think they're going to want to know the God of the family? <coughs> and I think this is a very strange thing that happens yeah. in our minds, that we start thinking about word and deed, and what we really mean in the, again, going back in a Christian world is, 
So proclaim the word to them and take the deeds to them rather than proclaim it to ourselves as well. And do it with ourselves as well. But do, again, our thesis, with the whole world present. Right. So invite them into our new society. Invite them into our small groups. Invite them into our party. And, and allow the world to participate with us while we are just being a good kingdom. Mm-hmm. And that is the missional nature of the church. Yeah. I think we have to be careful. Mm-hmm. I think it's back to what we said earlier. We could just start planning churches and forget that the most important thing we can be is a good church ourselves. Mm-hmm. That's missionary. Yeah. With the whole world. With the whole world present. Yeah. So there used to be this old adage, if you're in Christendom, we did this in one of our MA conferences about three years ago, or two years ago, three years ago. There was this sort of sentness, this idea that a missional church sends its back to the world. And we had to adjust that. I don't know if y'all remember that. I think so. Yeah, like John Hardy was the guy at the video. We really were on that. We had to say, hold it. This is not the thesis of missional ecclesiology. If you're a truly Indian context, a la Judaism, you know, build this new society and they will come. Yeah. And so there's a little, you know, the old adage, build the, the field of dreams that yeah. come. Yeah. So what, what uh, it took me a while to figure out what that video was was trying to do. And what it, I think the, the good it, that it was trying to get at is against the church that's like a theater, where you go, yeah. and it wants to say, no, don't bring them to hear this one talking head, and, and uh, you know, bring everybody into the big event of this uh, theater of listening to to some entertainment thing, but go out and be missional. But what it, what it missed is it was reacting against something that wasn't really a church. It was just a, a big talk or a big right. revival. But to actually be the church and, and have that community itself yeah. says that coming in is the is the exact right thing to yeah. bring them in. Isn't that a little bit, in that, I bet we're challenging you right now, sorry. You know, because we always think evangelists go out from the church. Right. That's not what Jesus said. Right. He said to the disciples, guys, this was to the disciples, go out and plant churches, baptizing, remember? Yeah. And and they will come. So there, so evangelism in the model that we're describing is certainly us being out in the world, making friends, witnessing, doing all that kind of stuff. But a major component of what we're talking about here, if you understand the missional think, think the church idea is... That old, you know, cliche. Build it, and they will come. And what we mean is build it. Build a really, truly healthy, missional church, and you're going to go out and tell everybody about this church you've been God using in your life to experience God's presence. And they're going to say, I want God's presence, and they're going to come. Go tell me that's not what happened in Acts 2. The people didn't go out into the... Think about what happened. They didn't go out. They just started being a church. And everybody came. Yeah. There's something to be said about this, guys. It's a total paradigm shift yeah. from the one I was growing up with and we were dealt with. For sure. With big Christian. For sure. Okay. Go and be. What? Go and be. Go and be, yeah. You know, not that you don't do, that you don't proclaim, right. that you don't, you know, yeah. keep right. it in mind, but right. it's, it's the being. Right. Not the all doing the right. specifics as much. Right. I, I also like the, the embassy analogy of, of we are in a foreign land and we're setting up embassies of God's kingdom. 
a way to do everything different, all of our relationships, a whole new society, inviting people into this new land to come and see ambassadors for Christ. Yeah, here's a taste. Come and taste it. All right, uh, the last chapter, all I want to do is just, all I want to do is just ask you what does the title of the chapter mean, and I think we'll understand what we need to understand. The title of the chapter is The Congregation as Hermeneutic of the Gospel. What does that mean? People do? The church, well, the congregation. Okay. What do you mean? Must stand for something. Like the congregation must? Must know what they stand for. Okay. The interpretation, I mean, that's what I think of when I think hermeneutics. Yeah. Is the interpretation of scripture. In this case, we're sort of talking about how is the gospel interpreted to the world. Right. Some of that is the interpretation of Scripture, the Word. Right. But the other interpretation is, is, is the interpretation of life. Right. How does the gospel impact life? How do we see that? Where do we see that? What a good interpretation right. of the gospel in life? And what's right. maybe a bad one? Yeah. Mean? Yeah. You can't even... The, the other side is you can't interpret the gospel without the congregation. So you you can't actually understand the full gospel without the congregation, right? That's that's another implication of this whole thesis, is that if if the church really is essential, and if the God is His business is creating new believing communities, then and the gospel necessarily creates these communities, you're not going to understand it, you're not going to experience it without it, right? So it's not one on one. You can't get it all. You can get some. Right. So that's really the, the, the thesis of Missional Church, thesis of this chapter, thesis that we've already, I think we've already hit. So I don't think we need to go beyond that. Um. This is great fun. And, and let me just tell you, um, I, I wish we had even more time, but I think what we just talked about, this idea of the church, um, you know, Newbigin will later talk about how... Uh, if you just step back on the balcony a little bit with me for a moment and think about what is the Bible all about? From Genesis to Revelation, really, what's it about? Is it about conversions? It's a way of life. It's a way of life. It, it's, it's a story of, we, we say it's a redemptive history. God redeeming his people. And, and but and, and that's right. And what would it look like to be redeemed? Isn't it the restore? It's, it's God building a, a new community, a redeemed community. It's it's it's, uh, it's it's all about the kingdom of God. We start off in Genesis, kingdom prologue, as Meredith Klein describes the, the chapters in Genesis. There, it's about the kingdom of God, a re- and now the kingdom of God being redeemed because the kingdom of God fell. And now a kingdom of God redeemed. But the, what, why do you think I'm phrasing it that way? And of course, this, what did Jesus come into the world say? He came proclaiming what? Kingdom the coming of the kingdom of God. Now, we, we there again, if you've just been around Christianity a lot, it becomes cliche and you know, anything. What is a kingdom? What is a kingdom? Something reigning. Okay, well, it's... it's, it's, it's 
some okay, the kingdom reigns over? No, no, no. The kingdom is what is there's a king over by a king. Yeah, it, it's a polis. It's a police. You know, P-O-L-I-S. It's a it's a city. It's a it's a it's a constituted city of laws, city of of uh, order, city of it's everything you think of about a city or a, maybe a country. It's a kingdom. With a, it's it's what we call a society, and I think that's why it's so important that we don't we, we tend to lose in our highly individualistic era that what it means to be a missional people is to be a people who who participate in that new society. And invite others to that new society. See, it's a very, in Christendom, and again, I keep using this phrase, because I think so many of us have been informed by that. Well, there's this kind of cultural hegemony of Christianity such that, that we forget that aspect. We, Christianity is sort of out there on the grocery store too. And so we, but I think one of the things I hear you say a lot here, people who live in this city, is, it's just a, a very interesting, different perspective. How church becomes like the, the best day of their life when they feel so alien and strangers all week, living in a culture that doesn't acknowledge our King and who doesn't experience our King. You know, and so I hear you all say this to me that this is just like water. This is like I think you feel it better more than I do. I know Lisa does. I mean, she's always telling me this that. You know, because I'm thinking, gosh, you really like church? And for her, it's just her, I mean, you, you say this to me all the time, but it's just like, I mean, it's just life-giving water to be around people like you who actually can experience and live what she can't experience and live when she's at school every day. And your lives too. And so I, I think what, what this one way to wrap this up is when you stop and think about this calling to be shepherd leaders, it really is to participate in the redemptive history of God, which at its core is about the coming of the kingdom of God and you being participants in seeing that kingdom come and, and participating in all those marks of the church, whether it's gospel-centered, missional, prophetic, priestly, kingly, confessional, sacramental, communal. I mean, everything that comes together as... This is the kingdom of God. Um, and, and what do you do at that to, for it to be the kingdom of God? Um, and so it's just, I don't know, we don't have time to do it, but just think, let that kind of gel for you a little bit. Um, so next steps. Uh, uh, congratulations. We are done. Um, this is it. <laughs> yes. And many of you have sacrificed greatly to be here, and it really is a, a, a and I know others have too, we've, we've got some that are not here, so I don't want to forget some of those that aren't with us just today, or I know some participated in the first half, and then something changed the second half, and I know they want to get it, and that's why they're glad to get the tape, excuse me, um, but but really, congratulations, I know it's been a real trial for you to get here, uh, I, I, I guarantee you're missing half your kids' sporting events, you know, to do it, and on and on it goes, so, um, and so the next step will be, of course, uh, for, I would encourage you though, everyone, if you're aspiring to the office or to the ministry of being a shepherd, uh, the, the most important thing you can do is begin shepherding. 
Um, you know, the idea of office development or any of this is to, um, and this is something I'm going to be talking to our our session in WLB about uh, this year, actually. It's something that's coming up is, is we've got to do a better job top down of really giving people opportunities to become shepherd apprentices, if I could put that term together. If you're a small group leader, you, you know, you really do need to, ha- to be doing your small group with someone who's eager to learn, to, who wants to be part of shepherding. And shepherding is more than leading a small group meeting, as you know. It's, it's beginning to disciple life on life, the people who are in that group, and seeing yourself as being an under-shepherd in spirit, even if not authorized per se, you know, if you mean by that you're an elder. So the first thing I would say to you is, is you, you, if, if you show interest in wanting to participate in a shepherding ministry, I mean, I'm going to commit to you to do everything in my power to help you find a way to do that. Um, you know, no matter where you are, what you are, who you are, you know, and I know Kevin agrees and, and all that, it, that, you know, um, so maybe, maybe you're not leading a small group, okay? But you think, I would like to do that. Or maybe you're not, maybe there's a couple of men in this church that you could start mentoring, or women. And if we could work that out. Maybe there's, there, there's all kinds of creative ways we can do. Maybe, maybe it's just one person wants someone to take them through uh, we, we could connect you maybe with someone who wants to do a kind of take them through the, the doc, you know, the, the, the beliefs of the Christian faith. And you would take, say, a confession and you would meet with this person every so often and you would, uh, just cover the doctrine of blank. You guys, you know, um, we have a pretty high bar. And relatively speaking, in this world, not relative to speaking necessarily in the world it was, okay, but relative to speaking in this world, I recognize that we have and we hopefully will never sacrifice a, sort of a, a relatively high bar of expectations theologically, etc., before you can be a teacher, before you can be an elder, before you can be whatever, and, and I hope you all applaud that. I think it's really more important than you think. Um, so my point in this is that you're you're so you have so you in this you have so much to give that you may not know that you had to give. I mean, there's very few people who walk through the doors of this church who could not be discipled by you. I mean, just let me put it that way. Very few people. I don't care where they come from. Um, if you've been getting a steady, if you've taken the confessional theology class, and if you've taken this class, and if you've done this servant leader primer thing, I will assure you. That there are very few people who've walked through this door where you could not readily be a mentor to them in terms of their growing and their understanding of the Christian faith, in terms of their understanding how that looks. So I guess this is meant to be an empowerment encouragement to you. To 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 be a shepherd is more than a course passing a course. It's it's having a heart that wants and desires to shepherd. And and don't be uh, bashful about it. Um, I really mean that. Um, I, there are we we talked about it in the '50s thing, but there are young professionals here. Some of you are, but who would just love to have an older mentor, spiritual mentor, one on one, 
Just, I mean, we, we, we think that's so realistic. Lisa can tell you on the servant leader board, I think you're the only one here, I'm missing somebody, but there's women that are always begging for, I want to, I want a mentor, right? And then some you come back and say they're always kind of looking for this. And you know, we're trying to say, well, we need to do it in a group context. There's only five certain WLB. But every one of you could say, yeah. So maybe the WLB would say, gosh, you know, blanks, Someone that's just really young in their faith and seems to be, I mean, wouldn't it be cool if we could say to Joanne or to you or whoever, hey, if, if this blank is really, I think would really benefit from having a shepherd mentor, would you be willing to do that? You know, meet with them on a, one, you know, a regular basis or men as well, you know, same thing. Uh, there's so many vehicles to do it. We have a men's discipleship group. One of the things we could do is weave this into that, where we say, okay, why don't we participate in a men's group and, and let's really assign, let's structure it so that every younger believer in the group has an older believer in the group or someone like you who's gone through shepherd leadership, etc. So I just I just wrapped off three or four schemes that we could utilize. You got another one? Well, I just want to say, and you tell me if you agree with this, yeah. uh, talk with people who are on the session at WB about this, but don't wait for someone to elevate you to this, to yeah, a position that's to start point. discipling people. So don't wait for someone to say, okay, now you're just do it. Yeah, that's my point actually. Just just start doing it. But my point is, if you're not sure where and how, talk to us. We'll figure a way. There is a ton of need for it. There's a ton of disciples. So we, I'm getting back to that idea that we talked about at the very beginning of this course two years ago, I think. Now, you know, we talked. Remember, the first half of the course is talking about shepherd and what is a shepherd leader and what are the things that we do and all of that. So that's step one. Next step is I. I proclaim to you, go out and shepherd. You know, shepherd missionally. It could be a non-believer you're shepherding. It could be a believer you're shepherding, but shepherd. Take initiative. Shepherd in your home. You know, let's don't forget, you know, one of the qualifications or one of the things, you know, I'm going to talk about it tomorrow in the sermon, but um, and you'll hear a sermon that relates to you guys, by the way. That's what we're going to be doing tomorrow is talking about the nominations and, and all this. But, but it's, it, it's so amazing how so consistently in Scripture, one of the vital car, uh, uh, you know, qualifications or, or prerequisites is that this person is already shepherding. The way, how's that said in the scripture? Remember, the church consists of, we have small groups. We have men's ministries, women's ministries. The early church had households. Households with layers of households within them. So, the, and I think we read that that he's you know that he's shepherding his family. We think necessarily just me. no. Think about it. are you already shepherding the household? And and so uh, make sure you don't forget your household. You know one of the prerequisites of being a shepherd is are you shepherding your own household? Husbands to wives, you know, husband wives to children. Uh, you know, are you shepherding? Don't neglect your home. And to me, that's a real. Good sign. Are you a good shepherd at home? You know, why, why, would, why would you feel called to shepherd the household of God if you've neglected the household of your, your own first jurisdiction? So that's a good sign. Are you doing that? Are you able to now open up your life more and shepherd in the household of God, of which your household is a part of it? Um, and so that's my encouragement to you, is to do that. Now, step two, of course, we have a formal process where there will be a nomination, and we're going to open up nominations for two weeks starting tomorrow. 
where we're going to encourage congregants to nominate those that they have discerned uh, uh, this kind of shepherding characteristic somehow in their life. It doesn't have to be formal, but they discern it. They see a person. They they respect this person's Christianity, and and. We'll see what happens. See how God. So there. So the idea of a call is there's always a there's three aspects of the call. Okay. First of all, there's the there's the definition of the call that comes from the Word of God. You know what is you know what is a shepherd, etc. Second is there's what we call the internal that you have a desire and you have a willingness and a and a desire to be a shepherd. We don't want any shepherds that, that are compelled to do it. That's one of the major criteria in, in, in uh, Peter, right? That let him not do this under compulsion. That is a horribly dangerous shepherd to do it out of guilt, to do it out of someone else manipulating me to do it. And it's a really dangerous thing. You don't do it because, oh, if I don't do it, I feel it horrible. you got to do it because there's a, there's a genuine desire that you have discovered even through maybe this process of discerning it where you say, you know, I want to be part of this, shepherding people's lives. And I hope you know shepherding again is a mission as well. So do you have an internal call? Do you see yourself as a shepherd? I know you're not a perfect shepherd. But do you see yourself as a shepherd? Someone who likes to shepherd and want or wants to learn more about that. And then there's the external call. Um, does the congregation see you as a shepherd? <laughs> um, that's got twofold to it. Congregation consists of the elders and, and, and whatnot, and they're going to have to have a process where they can discern your, your calling and credentials, but also the congregation has to. So the way that works together in our polity is we start with the congregation. We say, congregation, tell us, who are some women, men that you see as, as potential shepherds? You think that they could do that. And then what will happen is we'll receive those nominations, and then the session will want to, to examine you. Now, part of that, you have already satisfied some of that examination. Um, well, not examination, but some of the training for that, which is that you have been taught, if you've had confessional theology, and now you have the shepherd leader course, uh, you're now ready to, more or less, you might want to review a few things and things, but you might enter before the... And the examinations... Uh, fivefold, I think. Well, it's threefold, really. It's your Christian character, uh, your your theology, and your sense of call. That's an ex- point of examination, and that's really a big one. Do you really? Are you? And it gets into: Are you willing to give the time that's going to take? Look at the job description. Are you willing? It's going to take a sacrifice for you to do this. There's absolutely no doubt about it. There's going to be a, a few less trips. There's going to be a few less. Uh, times when you had the freedom to decide what you wanted to do on Saturday morning, I mean, there's just going to be some real uh, sacrificial things that comes with that. You can't, and, and wouldn't it? And would it be shepherding if it weren't? Because isn't that what we're to do? The power of the gospel is in sharing in the sufferings of Christ. That's actually the power of the gospel. So there will be that sense of call for, from you to be examined. There will be the sense of call from the congregation. The session will examine you in the character, theology, and the, that call itself. And then, if, if uh, and, and as things move forward, if that works well, then, then the next thing we do here is we have an apprentice. So we have what's called an elder apprentice or a WLB apprentice. And we'll invite you to do it for, I don't know, maybe a, I'll call it a season. I don't want to put a, a word, you know, a thing on it. But it'll be a season. And um, and it may be a semester, it may be a, a calendar year, it may be a semester, you know, an academic year, whatever it is. 
And, and at the end of that season, there'll be a, a, a re- reevaluation of each other and say, okay, you still call? Is this really something you want to do? And, you know, and at that point, we'll bring it to a congregational vote. And then they will affirm or not. Okay? Well, that's what we do with the session, I should say. I think the WLB, you're appointed uh, since we take the nominations as the, 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 you know, what's going on. So that's any questions about what I just said. That's the next steps. That's where we are in the process. I genuinely want to say, and, and again, it may be you, it may be some people not in this room, but we are at a very important moment in the life of this church when it comes to this. Um, this is maybe the most important time I can remember since really its inception, where we need to see another crop of WLB and session especially. Um, where it more and more is representative of the body, the full body of Christ, and uh, and and because we got a lot of work to do. Part of it's because we just got a lot of work, you know. Um, uh, part of it's because of, you know different seasons, etc., that's going on. So we just need it. So I really, imp- I'm praying really hard about this season right now. I hope that you will as well. And um, so, any questions? Everybody, you, you sure? Okay, all that stuff I told you, by the way, is in the uh, notebook that we gave you uh, way back when. If you remember, we we talked about that towards the beginning in terms of the steps and all that. I introduced it that way, actually. So you can go back and review that. Well, if not, again, I'm going to just close this in prayer, and then we have a meal, and we can just kind of hang out a little bit together. Lord, we thank you for just the blessing of the kingdom of God that's come. That that the Eden that we long for has already begun to be reshaped and rebuilt because of the power of your gospel. A gospel that was once given and delivered to Adam continues to grow and to thrive through all sorts of administrations in the civil spheres. Nation states have come and gone, but your church has endured from the very beginning. We see, therefore, the gates of hell will not prevail. That the kingdom of God is more powerful than the kingdom of, of, of the devil. And so, Father, we, we thank you first for this kingdom, for this church, and the way in which it represents your gracious love and desire to commune with us. And we pray, Lord, now that you will... Uh, as we see this great harvest around you, we beseech you. We pray that you will raise up from among us uh, shepherd leaders. I pray for these men and women that you will speak to them and in their heart of hearts as they prayerfully consider their role as shepherd leaders. Uh, we pray for uh, our congregation, even that begins tomorrow, as we pray for your spirit to lead us and and discerning who are called to be shepherd leaders in our midst. And we pray, Lord, uh, not a, we certainly pray for uh, the church planting and the movement of church planting that we've, we've asked for and that you've begun here in greater New Haven. But Lord, especially in this room today, we pray for CPC 135. We pray for this precious uh, communion of saints, for this body of Christ, for this kingdom, this local kingdom of Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you will preserve her and protect her and lead her, that this would be a place where people would be born again and saved, where lives would be transformed, where the world would be reached through the world that comes to us. 
Lord, we thank you uh, for this this uh, this church and the way you've manifested yourself in ages past. And we are praying for a new and fresh and powerful uh, presence of Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, as even reflective of a of a new uh, generation of leaders that that are coming. And we pray all this in Christ's holy name. Amen.